This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 525 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Alan Clark. Now, Alan has had an incredible life, and we discuss so many elements from his service in Vietnam, where he gave both his legs, his physical and mental rehabilitation journey, finding Christianity, working in politics, the VA, the National Cemetery System, and his incredibly powerful and unique perspective on the industrial military complex. We also discuss Sons of the Flag, the incredible burn and mental health charity founded by Ryan Parrott, a mutual friend. So just one side note, we did record this in two parts. So around the hour mark, you may notice a slight overlapping conversation. But apart from that, it's very fluid. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find because this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Alan Clark. Enjoy. So, 
So Alan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, I'm delighted. It's been an honor. And to have this the circuitous way with our uh, mutual friend, Ryan Parrott here, who runs that Son of the Sons of the Flag, which is such an amazing organization to help uh, burn victims and uh, burn uh, technology and burn uh, medical procedures. It's just fantastic what he's done. He's a dear, dear friend of mine. Yeah, he is. Well, I want to get to, to some of his work when we get to kind of the VA portion of, of your career, because um, I think it is very important for us to hear, you know, where where we're doing a great job supporting our men and women and where, you know, some of the holes are that maybe we, we can help fill. Um, so where on planet Earth are we finding you today? All I like to say is uh, North North Texas. Brilliant. Okay. Now that's good enough for some of the activities in which I'm involved. Absolutely. So I love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Well, um, I was born in McAllen, Texas, which is uh, one of the epicenters right now of this border situation because they're coming across the border in what's called the lower Rio Grande Valley. Uh, McAllen is in Hidalgo County. My mother um, is the product of a broken family. Her father was a, a Spaniard that emigrated to Mexico in the early 1900s came into um, came to Matamoros, Mexico, right across the border from Brownsville at the end of the Rio Grande River and uh, met a, a very fine cultured uh, German citizen, uh, a German uh, immigrant. Her, her father was a businessman, banker, whatever, in Matamoros. And so she has a history back uh, into uh, diplomatic circles uh, in northern Germany for a consular official. And so um, how a very, very tough, hard-nosed, um, physically active uh, Spaniard uh, ever was able to get a, a, a very a piano-playing teacher uh, to marry was kind of amazing uh, to all of us in the family. But anyway, my mother was born in um, Mercedes, Texas, grew up in Mission, Texas, south of the railroad track, because her name was Amalia de la Fuente, which means that she has she is of Hispanic heritage and back in uh, a, a much more uh, segregated Texas at the time, she lived south of the railroad tracks and spoke uh, Spanish as her first language. So she always spoke with an accent, just kind of like you, you know, speaking English with an accent. Um, She went to nursing training, went to Houston, met an Alan B. Clark, who was uh, a very interesting history, uh, all in America, beginning about uh, 1600, 1700s. So I have a, a a history with him back to a, a son, two sons of the American uh, Revolutionary War. So I'm a member of the Sons of the American Revolution War on that side, and then immigrants on the other side, kind of an interesting uh, combination. Uh, my father was an orphan at age two. His uh, father died in a railroad accident when he was one. His mother died in the Spanish flu epidemic of 1917-18. So at age two, he was raised by a uh, other family member. So anyway, they got together um, very um Soon, two months after I was born, dad was uh, ordered into the army, 1942. So he lived in various uh, United States bases. He said he volunteered twice for overseas service, but he he wasn't taken. He wasn't accepted for deployment overseas. So uh, he was in the United States for six years. And then um, 
So I was an army brat, as it is would call one sibling, a sister who has an extraordinary uh, military uh, background in her family. And um, we, he went to Japan in 1948 for three and a half years. We followed in 1949, uh, where I was uh, in school as an elementary school student in Japan for three years with my uh, mother, father, and sister. So uh, I grew up on army posts for about, um, well, probably four or five years of my life, early life. Now that's interesting. I lived in Japan, but as as a as a grown man, um, do you have any recollection of your time there? Oh yeah, you know we well we were in we were the occupiers, so uh, you know we had the upper hand, and uh, you know part of apparently the war reparations apparently the, the the country of Japan had to assign give us uh, servants, and so I mean we had a cook, we had a housekeeper, and we had a governess for my little two year old sister. So, uh, you know, we had these uh, very nice Japanese people who were, you know, I guess being from a conquered nation, they were, quote, subservient, but they were, you know, they helped us and we really loved them. We had a good relationship with them. Um, We were always going out to uh, sessions, uh, parties, ceremonies, individual homes. My father was in counterintelligence. So he had uh, close contacts with Coast Guard and uh, the police force of Japan. So we were invited to the homes to be entertained by the police chief, Coast Guard um, officers. And we went out on Coast Guard cutters one time to an island offshore, Sendai. So dad was in Sendai, which was hit by the tsunami 10 years ago, and also Fukushima, if you could believe it. So, I mean, obviously it was not a nuclear power plant in 1951 when we went to Fukushima, but uh, you know, those the tsunami 10 years ago brought to my mind Sendai and Fukushima and dad ended up his overseas tour in um, uh, near Tokyo in a base there. He worked in downtown Tokyo, but we lived on a, a big army base, which was a, I had been a former Japanese air force base. So uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't, uh, you know, we lived on the base and we had English, you know, in our schools. And so I didn't learn any Japanese, but it was an, a very interesting overseas assignment. And then my father eventually served. He was back only about a year or so. He was back to the Korean War. So he was there toward the tail end of the Korean War and counterintelligence activities up along the, the DMZ as, as the war ended. Yeah. Now, what's your perspective of that now? Because, I mean, that's, that's a very unique lens. He was there during combat. He was obviously on the intelligence side. Um, you know, what do you see? Because we, we, we had that... that um, incident recently where it appeared north and south had, had begun some diplomacy again you have a very you know unique lens what's your perspective of the tensions there well um you know that was not a successful war as defined by world war ii or world war one where the enemy was beaten and uh, subservient and uh, lands and countries occupied um, and, you know, severe economic sanctions against Germany after World War I and occupation by United States and French and Russian and um, English troops after World War II. Um, we did not, quote, vanquish the enemy. Um, when we uh, went into that country, General Douglas MacArthur um, was my childhood hero. And uh, I saw him once uh, when I originally arrived in Japan in 1949 and watched him come down from his headquarters, the Daiichi building in 1949. And then, of course, that brilliant um, amphibious operation that he conducted to uh, push 
the um, North Korean communists away from the little pocket that they had pushed the the Americans and the uh, South Koreans all the way down to a little pocket uh, around Pusan in the southeast corner of Korea. So he pushed us up into a northern South Korea, and then we went all the way to the Yalu River. And so I've had a lot of experience and conversations with uh, POWs and troops that had gone all the way to the Yalu River. And of course, when the Chinese communists came across in November uh, 1950, uh, that turned the tide of the war. And then we kind of uh, bounced around what, what has ended up being the DMZ today. Uh, so we did not beat them, but they didn't beat us. And it gave us time for South Korea to become the, the really uh, economic powerhouse that they have become. And uh, they are a highly Christianized nation. They are a highly um, uh, uh, educated nation, a highly technical nation. They've had their troubles with corruption, just like anywhere people get power. They want to get money. They want to get power, et cetera, et cetera. But we've held the line there. But but North Korea is, is a is as George W. Bush said, was an axis of evil. And it, um, you know, President Trump tried to open up um, conversations with them and negotiations with them. Um, you know, they, they are a dictatorship, obviously, with this uh, family tradition of control for two or three generations now. And uh, it's a communist nation, period. And, uh, you know, their people don't have any any freedom whatsoever compared to the freedom of South Korea. Obviously, we have boosted up South Korea. We put our troops there. We probably have nuclear weapons there. And it really bothers us when uh, North Korea uh, do their testing of their um, nuclear weapons and um, their missiles and so forth. So that's a big threat to Japan. You know, Japan and South Korea are well aware of that. But they really are a vassal state, in my opinion, politically of China. Interesting. Well, thank you for that perspective. Now, with that same lens, before we kind of move forward in your your timeline, with Iraq, with Afghanistan, uh, again, you know, there was a withdrawal process. Um, it seems like, you know, with South Korea, we were able to to set them up with the tools to be able to defend themselves, to be able to be, you know, um, uh, you know, stand up on their own two feet. Now, we'll get their independence, that's what I was looking for. What have been your perspectives on either the pros or the, the good or the bad that you've seen with the withdrawal for Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, you know, originally, the reason that we went into <clears throat> Afghanistan 20 years ago, um, you know, we sent a we felt that Osama bin Laden was based in Afghanistan. And we believe that. <clears throat> and apparently he was. <clears throat> and um, he uh, apparently was in a cave there with his uh, minions. <clears throat> and uh, we apparently had a chance to take him out uh, early in the war. And then uh, I think he got, you know, he got, he, he got taken into Pakistan and basically protected by the Pakistani government there, <clears throat> but continued to run the operation. Now, it's very interesting that Afghanistan, the, 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 the Al-Qaeda, um, the Taliban, really were originally people that we supported to overturn the Russian invasion, which started in 1979. Okay, so they were there for 10 years. Now, Afghanistan is a nation that we didn't understand historically. Apparently, Alexander the Great couldn't destroy them. Your former country could not uh, take care of them. Um, uh, obviously, the Russians couldn't win, and nor did we. 
because it is not the kind of country that has the high education level, say, of um, definitely Iraq and, and very high, highly educated individuals in their society. But Afghanistan is a very has always been a very backward society. So <clears throat> once we got hold of uh, and the, the seals went in uh, how many ever years ago that was and his hideout in Pakistan and we destroyed Osama bin Laden. That was the original purpose for going into Afghanistan 20 years ago, because you know the party line, the narrative was always that he initiated the, the 9-11 attacks. He, he's the one that the brainstormer that put all that together. So once that happened, we really had no real purpose to stay in Afghanistan, in my opinion, because, um, you know, we have we have thought that we could be nation builders and we could make these countries, notwithstanding thousands of years of their own history and not having the Declaration of Independence and Constitution of our own country, much less the, the Western civilization uh, that, that we have evolved from, but we can't make those nations into what the United States in, is and has become and hopefully will be, you know, if, if things stay on track for our freedom. So we tried to nation build after that, and obviously it didn't work. We put in a whole um, lot of money into that country, trying to develop their military um <clears throat> Obviously, with this debacle of the uh, withdrawal, uh, very, uh, very controversial withdrawal. To my understanding, President Trump had a four-step plan. He, he basically said, look, we got to get out of there. OK, we don't need to be there anymore. So he started a, apparently a four-step program with the military being taken out last. And he was supposed to take his original plan had been, had been, been reelected <clears throat> was to be out of there in May of this year. <clears throat> this um, this administration decided they'd do the same thing, but they didn't have anywhere near the planning process, okay? And it became uh, Saigon 1975 on steroids. That's the way most of us feel. Politically, uh, this has done terrific damage to the United States military and politically for this, this administration because um, we left a lot of equipment there. We left that Bagram Air Force Base, which was um, <clears throat> a, a, a very extensive runway type of base. And I, I believe that an awful lot of these Afghanistan uh, refugees that came in, uh, we, we cannot be <clears throat> we cannot be the melting pot of millions, much less billions that would want to come into the United States and enjoy our way of life, um, which is why we have the current border crisis and why so many Afghans that were not necessarily um, special immigration visa interpreters and helped us and work with us while we were there. And they deserve to come in just as did after Iraq. We had uh, a lot of interpreters and I've met a few of them and have, um, have tried to help some of them with getting acclimated to American life that came in. They've been very loyal interpreters for us and they work with the United States government. And so we got a lot of them out. I don't know how many of these hundred thousand plus Afghanistans are actually Afghanis are actually uh, people that work with our with our uh, military and our State Department and our contractors in Afghanistan. But apparently very little vetting was done. They just they showed up at the gate. Taliban left, let them in. And they put them on our airplanes, brought them to the United States and wherever they brought them you know, out of the country. And I'm sure there were some 
SIVs out of that, interpreters and so forth. Several weeks ago, I've been I began trying to get uh, influence with area Congress people here where I live to um, to to have special uh, enhanced and quicker SIVs to get out of the country because we saw things starting to unfold. Of course, the way the Taliban eventually took over, it was just like you know in one one week or two weeks, and it was a. Um, you know, a debacle and uh, people either didn't listen or they didn't know or they didn't pay attention uh, to to have a more uh, a more organized withdrawal from that country. And the veterans of Afghanistan feel no different than we in Vietnam because we didn't have a demarcation line like South Korea for South Vietnam. I mean, you know, obviously we, we do a lot of trading with uh, Vietnam now, but it is still a, 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 a controlled uh, country. Uh, you know, North old former North and South uh, Vietnam are a controlled country, but we're doing business there. You know, I have friends that have factories that they build there and, uh, you know, we, we buy their products and the, the, the little people are always hurt. They're the ones that are a little hurt. You know, the business people and the connected and the politicians and the, the powers that be sometimes known and unknown, sometimes behind the scenes, pulling the strings, uh, you know, they make it no matter who's in charge. But the little people there, uh, I'm not sure how, how much better or even uh, well that the, that the peasants survive there. Um, but all of us are so sad relative to how the country um, <clears throat> fell apart after we left and pulled our support and uh, money and uh, et cetera. And, and um, airplanes, you know, our air support and uh, intelligence support as the North Korean uh, communists poured into the country uh, in, you know, 73, 74, 75, especially, and the country fell. But we feel as badly then and still do as our troops do today. And we had nowhere near the debacle of um, missing in action, killed in action, wounded in action uh, to the numbers in Afghanistan or Iraq. But but the same thing kind of happened. We have a very small presence still in Iraq. And I think the current Iraqi government would like to get us all out of there also. But, you know, we, we did satisfy a purpose to to get rid of their dictator. They've had a chance. They've had a chance, you know, to put together their coalition of the Sunni, Shiite and uh, Kurdish uh, areas up there in the north in Iraq. So overall, I'm kind of giving a bit of an historical perspective and try to tie all that together from the standpoint of how I feel and believe about it. Yeah, well, it's an important perspective for us to hear as well. I had um, Richard Rice on the show, who was a Delta operator who started in Vietnam. He's one of the founding members. Um, and then his his career actually ended in uh, Mogadishu, was his last deployment, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then uh, Major Jim Capers, another one. So hearing hearing these perspectives from the Vietnam era. And also, I think a very powerful thing from from your generation was how you were received when you came home and, and the transition as well. So I'd love to get to that in a moment. But before we do, walk me through your journey into the military. I know, I know that you ended up in West Point, but uh, kind of walk me through to where you found yourself standing in Vietnam. Well, in 1950, uh, I was eight years old. So when the Korean War broke out, I witnessed something really, um, I believe, incredible for an eight-year-old. Um, our troops at Sendai, which is in the northern part of Honshu Island, which is the major island uh, of Japan, um, 
were levied and uh, deployed as a division. Uh, we had the Seventh Infantry Division, which which went left on trains immediately. You know, President Truman says we're going to protect South Korea, so our for our troops left on troop trains, literally to go down and to be taken across and flown in and uh, shipped in to Korea to fight the communists. Uh, I well remember my my father's commanding officer, who was a bachelor, and I mean all the women who were going to be um, back on the base. And my dad, like I say, didn't go to Korea originally. Uh, they were all hanging on this officer. I remember he had lipstick all over his face. Amazingly enough, uh, James, in 1963, we're talking about 64, 14 years later, I sat next to him at a function at Fort Sam Houston. He told me his name. And at age 22, I still remembered his name, my dad's commanding officer. I'm sitting next to him and I said, yeah, I seem to recognize that name. Were you in Sendai, Japan, in Counterintelligence Corps in 1950? He looks at me like, how the heck would you know that? And so I uh, reminded him uh, about uh, the lipstick that I remember as an eight-year-old on his face. So anyway, um, I read uh, the, the Stars and Stripes magazine every day as an eight- and nine-year-old. I kept up with the history of uh, the war all the way from uh, that um, stronghold we had in the South up to MacArthur's deal and all the way up to the Yellow River and then, then back to Porkchop Hill, et cetera. <coughs> so um, I began uh, at age eight to really grasp the Army and the mission of the Army. Um, as most Army brats did then, <coughs> we collected Army patches. So I had an Army patch collection. I came across an unknown patch one day Asked my dad what they were, what that was, and my dad said that's um, the West Point patch. And I said, "Well, what is that, Dad?" He said, "Well, that's an uh, officer training school in New York State." And he pointed out several of the officers uh, that that they were acquainted with on the post, uh, and said, "Well, there were West Point officers." And my mother had uh, played bridge with three young West Point officers on our ship uh, when we went over in 1949. <clears throat> they were all impressive to me as an eight-year-old, you know. Uh, 22, 25-year-old young officers all in good shape and everything. So I started believing at age eight that I wanted to go to West Point. So I had a mission in life, which I think is very important to inculcate in our young people and even as adults, you know, what are your missions in life? What is your goals? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do with your life? What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? Well, my... Um, <clears throat> 13-year plan was to graduate from West Point. So uh, I was a very serious student. And I mean, I stayed out of trouble. I mean, my, my parents wouldn't let me get in any trouble anyway, but I didn't want to get in any trouble. And I was a very serious student. I studied very hard. Uh, my father was very wise, a very smart man. He became a licensed attorney in the state of Arkansas, but he had gone to night school. So uh, back in those days, because he'd gone to night school and not University of Virginia, University of Texas, Harvard, he could not have become a judge advocate general core, legal core officer. So he, he was used for uh, special investigations from time to time because of his legal knowledge. So anyway, he was very smart. He got me into a Jesuit high school, uh, ninth and 10th grade in Washington, D.C. So I commuted from Alexandria, Virginia for two years uh, every morning uh, by a car, bus, uh, trolley up to my school, four blocks north of the Capitol building, Gonzaga in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was a Protestant in the school. Um, it was a Catholic school, about 600 all boys. They still are all boys school. And um, 
<clears throat> I studied very hard, prepped, and then dad was going overseas. So my headmaster at my school in Washington suggested that the to my father that he get me into a, a boarding school because he didn't want me to prep for West Point uh, in some small overseas high school in Germany or Japan, which were very small schools on the basis. So um, I prepped and got admitted to Phillips Exeter Academy. So it, it, the combination of Gonzaga and Exeter um, really prepped me for the academy. And uh, like I say, I studied very hard uh, beginning ninth grade. I mean, I did four and five hours of homework for three years of, of high school. Um, you know, it was a, a school where I wore a coat and tie um, to to class every day for three years, all boys schools. Well, a very interesting thing happened in 19, uh, when I was in ninth and 10th grade, I'd get my grades once a month at that Jesuit high school. And I'd literally walk down to Senate and congressional offices in the Capitol building. My father had gotten residence in Arkansas, my mother, Texas. So uh, there were two senators in each state and two congressmen. So I had six nomination opportunities for the academy. And I literally walked into those offices um, on a rotating basis. And eventually, um, you know, set the groundwork for both my mother's congressman and my father's congressman in Arkansas to be considering me and to have me in the slot to be considered for a nomination. So I went home from Exeter Christmas 1958. And Christmas Eve, 1958, five o'clock on the clock, dad's congressman from Arkansas calls me up and he said he had a principal nomination for me for West Point. And I said, Congressman, I'm only an 11th grader. I don't graduate till next year. He said, uh, Alan, I was defeated in a primary uh, this last summer. So I'm a lame duck congressman. I am filling up all my slots for the academies now. And I have three principal nomination opportunities. I would like to give you a principal nomination opportunity. He said, look, why don't you go ahead and this spring, take your tests for admission to West Point. And um, if you don't get in, it's a good practice year. That made sense. He said, if you do get in by chance, which I didn't ever dream could possibly happen, um, James, I said, uh, he said, you can decide whether you want to go. I was admitted to the academy in 11th grade, after 11th grade. So um, I went to Boston Army Base. I had the Asiatic flu in spring of 1959, literally got out of the school infirmary to go on a bus down to Boston Army Base to take my uh, physical exam, the SAT, psychiatric exam, and uh, did all my paperwork. May 1st of my junior year, into my junior year, I get a letter, you had been admitted to West Point. And my father had done a little research, and um, I, I had to be 17, which I would be June 20th uh, after my 11th grade. And uh, they were admitting, I think we, we entered July 5th or 6th, something like that, that year. And dad had checked it out and said, yeah, you know, it, the regulations say a, a cadet to be admitted to the academy should be a high school graduate. Didn't say must be. And I had the requisite credit hours. So uh, I was admitted and I said, what the heck? I'll just go. <laughs> you know, um, so I entered West Point uh, as the youngest man in my class, about 735 cadets. We graduated 504, uh, four years later. <clears throat> Dad was still on active duty. And rather than ending up in some isolated post, originally maybe at Fort Churchill, Canada or Japan or Germany or wherever else uh, for high school, um, I ended up going to West Point and he went to Hawaii instead. So for four summers, 
my four cadet summers, I spent a month on the beaches of Hawaii as a cadet. My vacation. So um, (laughs) I I studied very hard at the academy. Having a Spanish background, uh, Hispanic background, I did very well in Spanish and got an award. And then uh, my third year, I decided to get on the debate team. And uh, some of my classmates, the only reason you get on the debate team, so you can travel to these colleges and meet timekeepers and have dates from all the different colleges on the East Coast, which was an enjoyable part of my social life. Um, so I ended up, James, not, not to brag, but, you know, I don't know how it happened. I've thought about it, but I studied very hard uh, despite the activities that I had uh, to, to leave on a lot of trips for debates the last two years. And, and not to brag, but it's just fact. I ended up in the top 10% of my class at West Point. But I mean, it's because... I had a goal in life and I dedicated myself to that goal, tunnel vision, study hard, prepare yourself, keep yourself straight, ethically and morally, and and fulfill your goal of becoming an army officer. And so my prep for three years of high school that was four and five hours of homework at night and paying attention, serious attention to my studies, not being very distracted uh, socially or whatever, um, I was able to do well at the academy. It's amazing. Now, um, I know that when you were in West Point, you weren't initially deployed to Vietnam. Is that right? So you chose to volunteer? Oh, yeah. No. Well, yeah. I graduated in 1963. And uh, back then, West Point only allowed uh, commissions in five combat arms branches. Obviously, we're all male at the time. Five combat arms branches, infantry, artillery, armor, um, uh, Corps of Engineers, and let's see whatever they were. You know, I chose Corps of Engineers. Now, back then, a Corps of Engineers was the the, the, the branch in which um, the, the higher-ranking cadets had a chance to fill. Out of 504 graduates, we had 55 slots for Corps of Engineers. Okay, so uh, the number one man in the class took a certain oh, – signal corps was the other man. Number one man in the class had first choice, blah, 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 down through the line. So by the time they got to me um, – you know, I chose Corps of Engineers and the 109th man in my class of 504 completed the 55 slots for Corps of Engineers. So it was the first branch to go out. Amazingly enough, the the dedication to uh, graduates of West Point in the last 20 years has been of such a nature to my understanding that infantry goes out first. And that's pretty amazing. OK, so um, they've chosen the, the principal combat arms. Once women came in and they broadened the perspective of where West pointers could go you know they've added uh you can go to medical school immediately you could go to um um uh, military intelligence you go to medical service corps chemical corps and so forth so they broadened the opportunities for uh, the branches you could go into but back then i went to corps of engineers and went to a corps of engineer a combat engineer battalion fort hood texas as a platoon leader and um I was a, an executive officer of the company with less than two years service because of Vietnam uh, by 1965. We had started sending combat engine com, uh, construction battalions of engineers to Vietnam in the spring of 65. So what happened? All the combat engineer battalion majors in the United States were pulled out of the combat engineer battalions and sent to the construction battalions to be deployed to Vietnam to build all those huge bases, you know, um, Cameron Bay, Saigon, Da Nang, et cetera. Uh, A lot of money, a lot of revenue was put into those bases by the United States to prep for uh, large units coming into Vietnam later on. So, um, 
with less than two years service. And I guess being, you know, 23, I wasn't even, I think I was 22 years old, first lieutenant. A major had the slot for operations officer of battalion. They moved me in as a second lieutenant as operations officer. There's no majors around. So I became operations officer for about six weeks. And then, you know, I went to a hamburger place at the club one day. And I'm sitting there, you know, having a beer with another officer. He said, you know, we have, uh, he starts to talk to me. He says, you know, we have seven generals on post. Three of these generals need a general's aide. So would you be interested in being a general's aide? And I said, well, sure. You know, I'd always, we always call them horse holders, you know, in the old army. And so uh, I decided to become a general. I, I would compete for being a general's aide. And as I have a recollection, I think I was on the list for all three. Two of them were one stars. One was a two star. The two star was a division commander. And so I thought, well, I would go to work for the two stars. I was picked for him. I was his social aide. I was the junior aide because there was a, a captain that was the senior aide. So I did that for nine months. And um my first wife uh, was from a um, definite civilian environment that was not uh, in which the military was not uh, appealing to her, to put it very bluntly. She wanted to return to her home in uh, Dallas, Texas, and um, live the good old life, you know, for me to become a stockbroker, become an insurance agent, you know, whatever, make money, join a country club, play golf, you know, that sort of stuff. The good good American life for people in certain uh, professions and um, wanted me to resign. And I mean, you know, I resigned. Give up my commission, something I've always wanted to do since I was eight years old and understand to, understood to serve my country. How can I do that? So I said, well, you know, maybe what I can do is transfer to military intelligence corps and, uh, you know, get in what's called a foreign area specialty program because I had a Spanish uh, heritage and I had I spoke Spanish very well. Get in embassy work or intelligence operations in Central or South America, and um, you know not being in, deployed in the in the regular army. So uh, I I, just, I said, can we try that? And then maybe I can stay. So well, let's give that a try. So I transferred. My general officer, my division commander, heard that I'd asked for a transfer. He was very very upset at me. He said, professionally, Alan, this is not good for you. And I said, well, sir, I I. This is what I had to do to try to, to preserve my marriage. So I um, then 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 I was in that branch. He says, I still don't want you to get stay in the army for a career. So here I'm stuck. Okay, I'm in military intelligence, three years of service. So what can I do? I said, okay, <clears throat> another general, uh, one star on the division, commander, three star, um, three general officers, wanted me to go to Korea as his aide after I left the general, the two-star general. And so uh, I would have been able to go to Korea. I had a four-year commitment, go to Korea for one year and then come back. And we were all extended. All the regulars were extended past a four-year commitment out of West Point to fifth year. So I would have come back after four years of service, going to Korea for 16 months, non-war zone then, obviously, had one more year back here, out of the army, I'm free. Okay, so I could have missed the war. And my sense of duty, honor, country, uh, James, which is our motto of West Point, I could not do that. I could not accept that. I knew that I could not go to my future West Point reunions as a non-war participant. And so without telling her, <clears throat> I volunteered for Vietnam as a military intelligence officer. So uh, my orders show up. I just say, surprise, surprise, surprise. I uh 
turned down the general. He, he knew what my plan was, turned him down. And so I was off the safe duty in South Korea for a year and then back to the United States. And so my fourth year of duty would have been in the war zone and then come back for a year. But I would have had pride that I served my country. I fulfilled my obligation as a regular army officer and I would feel good about myself the rest of my life. So um, if you volunteer for war during war, you know, it didn't happen for my dad. Uh, you know, they had plenty of other people to draw from, but they took me as a West Pointer. So I go over there and I am a technical intelligence officer, which means that in a PO, I was trained as a POW, prisoner of war interrogator. Okay, because I've been a debater and uh, I'd be a good interrogator. Okay, so no prisoners to interrogate. And, you know, technical intelligence was handmade knives, et cetera. The, the communists, Russia and China hadn't put all their big stuff in the country yet, you know. So they weren't very sophisticated. They were strictly Viet Cong by 66. And the, the North Vietnamese had just started pouring in down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So after three weeks, I was bored stiff, bored stiff. Amazing how, how bored I was. So anyway, um, I decided that um, I was on a plane one day. And it, as things happen in life, there was a, a West Pointer that had been a tactical officer West Point. You all know his name. You know, stud type officer, Korean War veteran and decorated and everything. And so he's there. He's in charge of special forces in the central highlands of Vietnam. We had four areas of Vietnam, central highlands. So I see him on the plane going from Saigon to, you know, the Trang or whatever. So I go and sit, sit next to him and start to talk to him and introduce myself as a brand new captain in the war zone and uh, told him that I was bored in my job. Uh, big mistake. Don't ever tell somebody in the war zone you're bored in your job because opportunities will present themselves. And so in this case, he said, well, well, Captain, he says, why don't you, you know, you're in the train, which is where you're based and doing your, uh, your, your POW work, which isn't happening. And the, the Special Forces headquarters is the same base across the airfield from your post. Why don't you uh, ask for a transfer to Special Forces? I'll put you in a staff job. We call it S2 collection, you know, intelligence and so forth, staff work at one of my major bases in the Central Highlands. And I says, well, that's not a bad idea. So I go to my executive officer who, amazingly enough, as things happened in my life, had been my civil engineering professor at West Point. He's there for a short period of time. His actually says, Alan, that's what you want to do. He, he want to help me get in Corps of Engineers to start with. I'll tr get you transferred. So I transferred to Special Forces after about three weeks. So there I am. Bingo. You know, I'm in country. I'm satisfying my desire to serve my country in the war. And I said, well, a staff job, but, you know, that's a good job for me as an intelligence officer and so forth. So I get transferred and um, I'm, I'm at the headquarters for about a week, James, and I'm not transferred up, as we call it, up country from Saigon, the headquarters. You know, I said, or, or going to the headquarters um, in the train and special forces for about a week. And I go up to a sergeant and says, Sergeant, uh, why am I not up at my post? It's been a week now. He says, uh, sir, we've uh, changed your orders. I said, well, thank you very much. I said, can you tell me what my orders are? My new assignment said, no, it's, uh, we can't talk about it. I said, well, Sergeant, you're telling me that here I am an officer in the United States Army. You have changed my orders. You can't tell me what I'm going to do. He says, sir, it's a classified operation. And so I eventually find uh, another West Pointer that I met somewhere or other, some operation in the next few days. And he said, Alan, 
your uh, assignments, espionage against Cambodia and this new unit, which is being formed up. You're the first officer assigned to it. First American, period, brand new unit as a espionage against Cambodia. So, man, I'm thinking maybe embassy work, James Bond, you know, uh, collecting intelligence at the French embassy in Saigon, blah, 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 and sipping cocktails and so forth. But no, that's not quite right. You know, this was collection, what they call collection, you know, not just counterintelligence, but positive collection, area intelligence officer. So my first assignment was to debrief a Cambodian officer who had presented himself to the United States in Saigon and um, intelligence, intelligence operations get what's called operational intelligence on uh, assets, as we call it. So we got this asset and got OI on him. And uh, he was discovered by some special forces sergeants in a Buddhist temple in Saigon. So I spent a month with him, debrief him about 15 times, wrote up intelligence reports and found this incredible story, which I've documented in my first book, Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior, my biography about my service in Vietnam and my, my life and so forth, and my faith walk. And I document that. And uh, he, he, he weaved a, a, an amazing tale, uh, for sure. His mother supposedly been the head housekeeper at the chief of state of Cambodia, Prince Sihanouk. It was a neutral country at the time. Communists were pouring down and used Cambodia's base camps, kind of like the Taliban used Pakistan as base camps to attack us in Afghanistan. The rules of engagement would not allow us to go into Pakistan recently, nor were we allowed to go into Cambodia originally into those base camps and to wipe them out because they were coming across, attacking us, going back out, which is what happened to my unit when I got wounded uh, in 67. So um, a major, the executive officer of our, my detachment came in after months of Allen were taking charge of him. And we went to get strategic intelligence because he'd, he'd attended Patrice Lumumba University in, in uh, Moscow. That's a school for revolutionaries. The communists set that up in the 50s and 60s. They took smart people from all over the world and they brought them into Moscow to indoctrinate them to go back and do their wars of national liberation, which they were very successful at all over the world. And so this guy spoke seven languages. I mean, he was smart. He was one smart cookie. He could speak to me in English. He spoke French. He spoke Vietnamese, spoke Cambodian, two uh, uh, Russian and two dialects of Chinese. This guy was a high value target for sure. So anyway, he was eventually assassinated after I left country in 1968. Front page, New York Times. I'll get back to that if we have time. Anyway, my next assignment, my commanding officer takes me to lunch. He's paying for my lunch. I knew something was up after one month with debriefing this agent. He says, we're setting up an operation to do infiltration missions with small teams of Cambodians into Cambodia to collect intelligence. I want you in charge of it. So for three months, I lived in safe houses and a trained a three-man team of Cambodians and a two-man team of young Cambodians live with them, civilian clothes. They didn't know my name, uh, train them in uh, operational techniques, uh, intelligence, um, um, being able to, to spot um, weapons and installations and so forth and, and uh, weapons training and so forth and put them into the country, uh, into South Vietnam, um, as a three-man team and a two-man team with a helicopter insertion operation to go into Cambodia. Impenetrable jungle. 
neither of my two missions worked. So I, I spent three months unsuccessful, but it was a first attempt to send uh, clandestine units of uh, indigenous people in back into their home country. So it didn't work. So I spent three months doing that. And then I got assigned to a, an isolated post called Docto Special Forces Camp, A-Team. We had A-Teams back then. They have some other name today, you know, detachments, 12-man Special Forces team and a kind of a, a fort, you know, kind of a, like a, you know, if you picture a, the forts in Arizona during the American Indian Wars, you know, the square and so forth, inner perimeter special forces with the um, outer perimeter where the Montagnards and Vietnamese controlled, you know, and had the parapets and the machine guns and everything set up. And so I got assigned there to, to organize um, agents to go into Cambodia from there. And we had collected, we, we closed down all the villages you know, near the border and moved the mountain yards, the mountain people into protected operations. And we hired them as, as our mercenaries. So uh, that ended up being unsuccessful. Also, James, very frustrating. It was one of the first opportunities we had to do something like that. So we had several places along the border where we set up teams like that. We had an officer and then a, a, a medic and then a radio operator, intelligence, a special forces person. So I was never trained as a special forces officer, but I was airborne qualified. And of course, it had, I've been to Jungle Operations Center School in Panama for three weeks or whatever it was. And um, so I had counter guerrilla training, et cetera. And uh, so I was assigned to special forces, didn't go to the school. And I'm always very quick to, uh, to tell people, look, I'm not a special forces officer. I was an intelligence officer assigned to special forces in Vietnam. Keep the record straight because these guys are highly trained, as you well know, the special operators and everything in our special operations uh, in all branches of the military. And they are to be commended for their bravery and their courage and their training and their dedication and their conviction. And they are wonderful American uh, military people. So I don't pretend to be one of them. But um, in on June 17th, 1967, uh, one of those NVA battalions that had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and been base camped in Cambodia. Well, let me go back just a second. The reason my I found out later that my mission was unsuccessful getting people into the jungle areas into Cambodia from that camp. Number one, it was a long distance to the border. But also I found out later on that that area between my camp at the tri-border point of Cambodia, Laos, and South Vietnam was a key uh, underground installation area that the communists had been digging into for years. They were all underground, so they could not be detected. So they had their supply bases, their hospitals, their training bases all over that area. So my people, my agents that, you know, that I recruited to go out, they knew that, but I didn't know that. They didn't tell me, and I didn't know till later. So that's the, the reason why they were unsuccessful. So anyway, I was there uh, into the 10th, into the 11th month of my 12-month tour. So um, I was really kind of getting ready to close shop. By the time this NVA battalion moved into our area and ambushed a special forces-led patrol with, with South Vietnamese, you know, three Americans on a patrol and um, South Vietnamese actual supposed commanders, we were the trainers and advisors um, on the patrol. But you know, maybe a hundred of our mountain yards were on that patrol. 
10, 15 miles from the camp, this NDA battalion attacked them at two, uh, ambushed them at 10 a.m. at night. So two out of three Americans were, were killed on our, uh, from the Special Forces team. So um, I was like uh, June 13th or so. And so we had what in Vietnam, what's called a mic force, which is today quick reaction force. When somebody comes under fire, uh, they, they put in, you know, special uh, ranger team or whatever SEAL team to reinforce them and so forth. <clears throat> and so our quick reaction force, Mike force sent in a, a, a special, a more highly trained Montagnard or Vietnamese operation with four Americans. Apparently all four of those Americans were killed to the best of my understanding. So all these six special forces people were on the wall in Washington, DC. So they, they did uh, recover the original, uh, two bodies from the original ambush. And uh, the the communists are not real civilized when it comes to treatment of our casualties. As you probably heard in past interviews, but so that, that was uh, the case here also. So anyway, um, I let my, my commanding officer knew back in Saigon, 280 miles away, that the communists were moving in on our area. So he sent me a radio message like on the, 16th, Alan, I want you with your duffel bag on the airstrip at Docto the morning of the 17th at 930. I'm bringing a plane up to pick you up. So I'm closing down this intelligence collection operation at this camp and I'm bringing you back to Saigon. So well, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm undercover, false name, false ID. I'm an infantry officer, you know, and my mission had been basically shut down in the area because nobody's going to go out of the camp. So uh, I'm ready to go, 9.30 a.m., leave the camp, and um, with a, a sergeant that was still there and with me in the, in the assigned assignment, and um, in a special forces camp every two hours in Vietnam in the inner perimeter, beginning at 10 o'clock at night for four two-hour shifts until six, you have a special forces assigned person on duty for a two-hour shift in the inner perimeter. So I'm on the inner perimeter from four to six. I'm finishing up the, the six uh, at six o'clock, having breakfast, finishing my packing, getting on the airstrip at 930. I'm out of there. Okay. So the night before we looked across the, I'm standing next to the special forces team commander, um, a captain, and we're looking across to our south wall, as we call it. And there's a river there that was fort. And I'm not sure it was even fordable there, but it was fordable in other places. And we look across, we see some activity across on the high ground, not, not the high mountain ground, but the high hills. And um, in hindsight, we should have called an airstrike in because they were setting up positions to mortar us the next morning. So at 4.30 on my shift the next morning, this mortar attack starts. So I'm there and, you know, somebody hands me a, a radio to communicate with the downstairs headquarters operation. So, you know, you do the kinds of things that, quote, you're supposed to do when um, you're under fire. So I start, you know, yelling out, grabbing men and saying, you go load at this pit, and you, you load at this pit and put put flares up on the, the south wall because that's where we thought the enemy might come across the river and dugouts or whatever and attack us or around the sides or whatever. We didn't know where they were and uh, put flares up in the air in case there's a ground attack and put counter battery fire. So I'm in the middle of that 4.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm, I kind of did what I felt should be done, needed to be done. Nobody else around to do it. I guess everybody else was smart and got in the bunkers, call the Air Force, put put um, 
you know, put the uh, Gatling gun fire on the enemy positions, which did happen uh, very quickly. But a mortar round hit to my left rear while I'm in the middle of looking at the, where the enemy, where I assumed the enemy was firing from, which they were. And a mortar round hits to my left rear. And about as I pieced it together, 18 inches to my left rear. And as it turns out, it took my left leg off traumatically, immediately. Nothing left in my left leg. Right leg ends up being broken in five places. I'm obviously flat on the ground. I don't know what's happened to me. And so a, a, a special forces medic comes and provides initial um, combat aid, medical aid immediately to keep the stop the bleeding. I get brought into a bunker where Cat, um, Sergeant Jimmy Hill, the, the medic for the camp, I started up and got hit had a, a shrapnel uh, in, in his left shoulder, which he kept for 18 hours that Saturday, all the way till Sunday, till another medic came in to take the shrapnel out. And so he knocked back in his bunker. I was brought in on a litter. That uh, medic, uh, Jimmy Hill, treated me, went under the barrage of fire to get, um, uh, I think it's called plasma, they put into me to, uh, replace my body fluids and morphine. And so I'm on the bed. I don't know what's happened to me. I didn't know what happened to me. I couldn't see my legs. And so I wasn't knocked out. I was not in a coma. I was not knocked out. The Lord saved me on the battlefield, but I had full mind. I could understand. I could hear. And I could hear the, the Air Force Gatling guns coming once, boom, puff the magic dragon, they call the ship, the, the airship. And um, uh, the medic, I said, I told the medic, I said, uh, Jimmy, I'm going to die. I said, be sure my wife knows my real name. My real name is Clark, not Copley, which was my assumed name over there. He says, Captain, you're not going to die. He says, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. <laughs> and it's very emotional, obviously. And um, I said, uh, don't, don't take care of me. Take care of everybody else. I said, I'm going to die. He said, no, I'm going to take care of you, Captain. And so he did. And uh, I guess a couple hours later, the enemy firing positions had been knocked out. And uh, we were all medevaced out. So we had 25 Americans in the camp. Uh, two Air Force guys, had, men had come in the night before on a spotter plane. And they had bunked in one of our um, buildings in the inner perimeter. And mortar uh, came in. Mortar rounds came and killed them both. One was sitting right next to me, literally next to the cot on which I was, my medic's cot, literally three feet from me, had a fin sticking in his head. You know, he took a direct hit. Um, <clears throat> and I was medevaced out, and uh, that started a 15-month uh, situation for me uh, where I had 12 surgeries. Um the right leg was taken off 10 days later. So here I am with both kneecaps, but a uh, double below the knee amputation. And uh, my, my, my PTSD started, obviously. And um, I was really, I had to have Demerol shots every three hours for six weeks and um, sleeping pills, antidepressants. And I ended up um, staying there for uh, 15 months total. After eight months, uh, I had a, uh, a breakdown, nervous breakdown, uh, combat, operating stress, post-traumatic stress, whatever you want to call it, I broke. And I didn't go an enemy sleep for four hours. And if you keep anybody up for four hours, you know how it is. You, you wrote a lot about sleep deprivation as law enforcement, firefighters especially. Um, you get sleep deprived and you're out. So I 
collapsed. And so I went to a close psychiatric ward spring of 1968 for 14 weeks, some of the worst time of my life. Individual psychotherapy three times a week, group therapy with a bunch of younger vets there. I think I was the only officer in that in that group. And a lot of them had broken down in basic training. They couldn't take basic training. They discovered they were schizophrenics or something. So they had to bring them in there, send them back out in civilian life. And um, I think it was one other soldier, maybe one or two others that had uh, been under fire, you know, or had PTSD. So that was 15 months of it. I came back out and I started my civilian career, got an advanced degree. So I've done most of the talking, James. No, no, it's beautiful. That's a war story. Well, that's the thing is, you know, I don't, I don't need to interject at all. When you're telling that story, I think it's very important that you just listen. I just want to ask about Jimmy the medic, and then we can kind of conclude that portion, and then we can chat about another day if that's all right. So Jimmy Hill, <clears throat> amazingly enough, been able to stay in contact with him. Okay, and he lives in Florida. He retired as a deputy sheriff in a county near Tampa. <clears throat> and so he came through Dallas um, <clears throat> several years ago. He'd come through Austin um, back when I lived in Austin back in the 80s. <clears throat> and uh, I was invited by an, a military a veteran group or whatever uh, to a Tampa conference several years ago and knowing that Jimmy was nearby I invited Jimmy to come so he was came up on stage with me and I uh, brought attention to him <clears throat> and what he had done for me and he's very modest about what he did he's he, he is he could have been on that patrol that was wounded where the the other medic and another weapons man from our team uh, were killed on that patrol. The the detachment executive officer lieutenant survived and uh, came out in 67 just before I was wounded in my day um, with maybe half the uh, Montagnards or how many ever were survived the attack and the wounded and so forth. <clears throat> So we've kept in contact through the years and um, communicated. Um, like I said, he'd been wounded um, and had never received a Purple Heart. So he was coming to town about 19, um, uh, 2005. He, he contacted me early 2005. He was coming to town to the, the races over in Fort Worth. In the course of the conversation, I discovered he'd not gotten a Purple Heart <clears throat> from that wound. <clears throat> and... Um, I said, well, do you have a piece of paper that indicates that you were wounded? <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. I said, send it to me. So between about January <clears throat> and April 30th, <clears throat> 2005, which was the 30th anniversary of the final evacuation from Saigon in 1975, I arranged for a surprise Purple Heart to be awarded to him at a ceremony at the hospital, Army of the Veterans Hospital in Dallas, Texas, where I worked, and arranged for two Medal of Honor recipients who are personal friends of mine here in the Dallas community to present that Purple Heart to him. So we had a ceremony and um, uh, it was a really special time. Um, and we awarded him that Purple Heart uh, they awarded the Purple Heart to him, and obviously he was very taken. It was a surprise. I had one of my daughters that, that was in, came to Dallas and uh, 
there was a picture at the end of the ceremony where she hugged him and his back, his face was away, but you could see her face. And he told me later when I sent him the pictures, do, do you know what uh, your daughter told me when she uh, hugged me at the end of the ceremony? I said, no, she said, she said, thank you for bringing my daddy back home, which obviously he did by giving me the treatment immediate medic treatment along with the other medic whom I never had contact with through the years. And um, I end my speeches all the time with, um, I did come home and I, I have a, a PowerPoint that I use for speeches and so forth. And um, I show that picture as the last one. I said, you know, she appropriately um, gave him a, uh, credit for bringing me home as a soldier. But I know that my Lord God in heaven in the name of Jesus will take me home to heaven when I die. So my final home is going to be in heaven. And I was saved on the battlefield to come back to my home in the United States. Uh, but my final home is in heaven. So we, we've kept in touch through the years. And uh, he obviously values and uh, very much that, that purple heart, which he had never received. And um, he's had a life of continued service to his uh, fellow citizens also through the years. Um, and uh, my my time um, through my life, I, I was on the governor's staff and for two and a half years, 1978 through 1981 in Texas. I was a governor's special assistant for administration. I was lia the liaison to a lot of different constituencies in the state, gave a lot of speeches when he couldn't do it. And uh, I had a lot to do with the disabled community. And what we have discovered, um, and it, it's in this this uh, nomination form, which I will send you. So if, if we, if we by chance did have another chance to have an interview, uh, it documents uh, how I had gotten started on the governor's staff in 1979, an effort to the with the disabled people of Texas, and the gentleman that I uh, recruited for that effort in Austin. Uh, took the program that we instituted for the disabled in Texas in 79 nationally. And he was on the stage at the South Lawn at the White House in 1990 with President George H.W. Bush with a chaplain and the president and Justin Dart Jr. that I'd recruited in Austin to run the Texas operation. He took it national, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I had a part in that. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, uh, I was in business for a few years and then I went back to Washington and I had um, and I was a political appointee in the George H.W. Bush administration. I've had extensive contact with veterans through the years. I mean, people have heard that I had this combatfaith.com. It's www.combatfaith.com. It's my lay ministry website. I put a blog together, combatfaith.blogspot.com. Had about 90 entries, and I kind of stopped that because I had my, my books to do. <clears throat> and um, so I've been very active in the veteran community. I spoke at all those bases. Um, have spoken innumerable patriotic and uh, political and uh, military and veteran organizations through the years. I've spoken to probably tens of thousands of people, and I've told my story and my own healing from post-traumatic stress. Uh, and I don't like the disorder term. I really don't. Because um, we do become uh, emotionally damaged. So it definitely is post-traumatic stress. Mine was um, 
my my wounds from Vietnam because I was fine. Other than that, you know, other people in in your business and law enforcement and families, you know, battered women, and, you know, I guess battered men in some cases, children that have been abused. There are a whole lot of conditions in life that you've interviewed plenty of people that uh, suffer from post-traumatic stress. You know, the from the war, it's, I call it combat operating stressors. And, you know, uh, I talk to, I've talked to uh, soldiers and Marines and airmen and Navy people that have post-traumatic uh, stress issues. And, um, you know, they say, well, I don't know how you dealt with losing two legs and being in a close psychiatric ward and, you know, 20 surgeries, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, look, we all have our demons. You know, the, the prisoners of war have demons. Uh, people that, um, you know, are are back at the dentist's office when their unit is ambushed, you know, and they feel guilty. So it's guilt complex. So they survived. Their best friend sniper killed them on a patrol or an ambush, you know, or they didn't perform exactly right. Or they're disappointed in their officers, uh, you know, multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of issues that, that, you know, I have, I have dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of emails and conversations uh, through the decades that I've talked to veterans from the wars, from all these wars. And, um, you know, my combatfaith.com, I have specific, um, specific entries in that website about the, the wars, World War II examples, Korean War examples, Vietnam, uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan, current wars, all branches of the military. And, you know, I take it down to the, the base level of an emotional, spiritual issue, James. And I try to uh, get get down to the, the base event, which means there's a, there's a, a spiritual, there's an emotional trigger that, that starts. And I try to bring in uh, my love in my own mind, which is what helped me uh, after seven or eight years after the war with antidepressants and individual psychotherapy, I got my faith act together. I went to a church, got in a, a Bible study, studied the Bible on my own, and eventually the Lord Jesus took, just took it away from me. This doesn't mean that I don't think about what happened to me and all these stories that I've talked to other veterans about. I've talked to spouses. I've talked to girlfriends. I've talked to boyfriends. I've talked to veterans themselves, obviously, but they've heard about it. I've been asked to give speeches. You know, I'm doing a, a local speech here um, after the wall has been at their uh, town here in Texas um, for the previous weekend in, in a couple of months, going to talk about my story. So I've heard innumerable stories. I've heard all the different kinds of stories you could possibly have, all the different uh, reasons, uh, what I call the separate demons that our veterans with combat operating stressors face. And I always come back to the spiritual emphasis. Okay, tell me exactly what happened. What were your triggers? What have you done with your life? If you have anger management, do you have um, not keeping a marriage? And by the way, I'm, I was divorced from that first wife. She was my wife for 30 years. She put up with a lot, you know, amputee ward, uh, close psychiatric ward, and then, you know, issues being around a wheelchair in the evenings and so forth, getting my legs off and, uh, and you know, take it easy around the house. So she just got to the point where after 30 years of marriage and my volunteering for Vietnam without telling her, which is a major issue, which she eventually forgave me for, which is a very interesting spiritual story, uh, dimension. Um, and I, I've been married for 17 years now to a, a wonderful woman who's the widow 
chains of a, another West Pointer that didn't serve in the war, but um, became got out of the Army, Airborne Ranger Infantry, got out of the Army, became a very successful architectural engineer. And so we've been married for 17 years. He, she, he died 25 years ago or whatever. So we've been married for 17 years. Great marriage. Her father was a World War II radio operator on C-47s in Europe. So she's she's been the daughter of a of a veteran and a widow of a veteran, you know. And um, so we've had a great life. So I, I tell people I've been, um, you know, uh, how long have you been married? Well, I've been married 47 years, uh, two marriages, a nine-year break in servitude, which really burns my wife, current wife up. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I say that, you know. Uh, so I've had extensive experience with uh, post-traumatic stress. And um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very unique situation for all of us. And everything is unique. It, it, it relates to the situation that, that could be long-term, like, you know, you all for years and years and years are under fire, you know, fire, real fire, and the stressors and the sleep deprivation that you wrote about and seeing your people, um, having your, your friends commit suicide or killed in fires and burying them, you know, all these things and um, on and off duty and, and the, the long hours that I read about in your book and, you know, uh, uh, our situations typically maybe lasted four years in World War II or 12 months, you know, 13 months, 16 months in Korea, 12 months in Vietnam, maybe multiple tours. So we all have our reasons why uh, we have these issues to deal with. And civilians have no idea. Civilians have no idea what first responders like you and what we do going off to war, what it's all about to make the citizenry safe like what you were involved in to make the country safe, the world safe for what we did. And I think one of the bottom lines today, James, with us is they, many, many, many don't care. They don't understand what you do. They don't recognize what you do, nor what we did in a broader picture around the world. I mean, <clears throat> what bothers me about a lot of things that are happening in contemporary society is that we are losing freedoms in our country that I almost gave my life. And I definitely gave years of my life emotionally and two legs with everything I've been through and all my fellow compatriots and the people buried in our national cemeteries and our overseas cemeteries for freedom for others. So we can protect this land, keep it out of here. And we're losing without a shot freedom in this country that we gave our lives for overseas for other countries, sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not so well-intentioned, sometimes not directed so well. Absolutely. Well, Alan, you mentioned about the amazing medic, you know, that, you know, responded to you when, when you were wounded. Um, when I heard one of the other interviews that you did, um, that, if I'm not mistaken, was Jimmy's first ever deployment and you were his first ever casualty. So to have someone so horrendously wounded, um, you know, that screams, you know, firstly, great training, secondly, great selection for the individual for that role. But, you know, what an amazing human. So I'd love to, if you wouldn't mind, just talk about not only Jimmy's experience, but also, you know, his wounds and then all the other people he helped during that time as well. Yeah, well, um, about uh, June 14th, 1967, one of our special forces patrols 
uh, was out in the country, uh, three, three special forces, and then the Montagnards, who are our mercenaries, uh, got ambushed at 2 a.m. in the morning uh, by a North Vietnamese Army, regular Army battalion, you know, with the pith, uh, pit, uh, pith helmets and khakis and obviously weapons that come in from Cambodia, which was a privileged sanctuary. So two of the three were killed um, and a whole bunch of Montagnards were left out there. And of course they came back in, made the reports and there was wailing, literally wailing by the, in the camp, by the uh, surviving family members and so forth. So another army patrol special forces went out and possibly all four Americans were also killed. Uh, Jimmy has not been, been able to determine, didn't, didn't hear exactly. But on the 17th, I was leaving the camp at 9.30 a.m. as an undercover intelligence officer, uh, false name, clandestine activities against Cambodia. And um, I was on the shift from four to six of the camp. And I was leaving at 9.30 because my commander was coming up, taking me out. So at 4.30, this attack starts, uh, mortar and shrapnel. Now, in, in the fog of war, and in, in even when you're not being fired upon, there's a fog. So the night before, at dusk, we had looked across, and there were like figures across the river to the south of our camp. We could see them on the hillside. And we, we could have, the, the, the commander of the camp, and I could have advised him, which I didn't, call in an airstrike because we thought they were, you know, thinking maybe they were enemy. We just thought they were uh, uh, natives, you know, just messing around at night because we had about 11 villages around us. So nothing was done. So all night long, you know, we have our shifts between 10 and 12, et cetera. Mine was four to six, leaving at 930. And so at 430, <clears throat> an attack starts. <clears throat> so I'm upstairs and um, somebody from downstairs in the operations bunker hands me a handheld radio to communicate downstairs. So we have three mortars in the camp and I started literally grabbing men and sending them to a mortar pit, you know, saying, okay, uh, go, go load at that pit over there. And then um, one of my men that said, look, I'm by myself. I need a special forces man to help me at this mortar pit. So I grab a special forces sergeant, send him to that camp. And then I'm grabbing people, you know, everybody's in, running around, as you can imagine, during an attack. And then I get hit, you know, how many, how long after 430? I don't know. But, you know, I was telling the mortar pit people, giving them, you know, orders, basically instructions, put um, put flares up on the south uh, wall of the camp uh, in case an enemy attack came. We could, our, our people on the parapets on the outer perimeter could see them and fire on them and our machine guns could, could uh, fire on them. So the Air Force showed up whatever amount of time it was, began putting uh, fire on the enemy positions, which eventually, after a very heavy mortar and rocket barrage, um, stopped the attack. But the, the, the final results of the 25 or so Americans in the camp were um, two Air Force people killed. When I was wounded and brought into my bunker, one literally was in the next to my um bed in the bunker, the, the cot, and then another one was killed also about 10 or 15 feet away from me in a building. And then um, eight others were wounded. And of the eight that were wounded, uh, I had come in contact with about five of the eight. I mean, either the guy that I sent to the mortar pit or my own medic or somebody else that I grabbed to do this, whatever the case may be. And I always felt a little guilty about that because I would send them to a pit to do their to do the work for loading and they got wounded. So it's always bothered me through the years. But anyway, 
I'm I'm there with on the radio when bang I get hit. So I have my rifle and I have um, you know holding my rifle in my left hand on the radio on the right side, looking out to where we assume the attack was coming from. And um, so I get hit, and then another combat medic uh, attends to me first because I've yelled out, "Oh God, I'm dead!" Which Jimmy Hill, my 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 uh, medic in the bunker, heard me, and then another one got to me first. I don't know; he must have been nearby, and so he performed immediate first aid. He said, "I, I was really in bad shape." Uh, I have the specifics of it, but to go into detail is too gory. And then Jimmy Hill started up out of the bunker and another round hit and formed about a six foot diameter hole in the ground. And a piece of shrapnel hit him in the left shoulder, knocked him back into the bunker. He had heard me yell out, oh, God, I'm dead. Oh, God, I'm dead. You know, and and I've always kind of joked when I give talks that uh, when soldiers get hit, they either call it call out for mama or for God. And I decided to go straight to the top of the chain of command and ask for God. And so anyway, uh, that that original first medic and someone else in the camp who, who ended up getting wounded, either had been wounded then or later, uh, started toward the bunker of my other medic in the camp. And he uh, he started he put me on, a, on his cot and, and started treating me. He went out under fire with a piece of shrapnel in his left shoulder under fire to the medic aid bunker. For some reason, he didn't have morphine and plasma, which needs to be refrigerated, I guess, uh, the plasma. He went out under, probably under the barrage. I don't think it was over. I don't know. Got morphine and plasma, came back and shot me with morphine in my left uh, thigh and, and right thigh. Uh, the left leg was traumatically removed by the wound below the knee, about two inches. The right leg was broken in five places. I, I found out later on it. It was eventually put in a full body cast from the top of my hip all the way down to the toes. I could see my toes. So he treated me and what uh, I remember saying was, um, number one, uh, Jimmy, be sure, since I'm dying, and I said, be sure that my wife knows uh, what happens, because I'm undercover. He says, I'll take care of it, Captain. You're not going to die. You are, you are. He told me later I was his first combat casualty, because he'd only been in the country a week. He, he, he just graduated from the combat medic school at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, which is about a four-month course, and uh, very intense for Special Forces medics. And then he had other, other courses and so forth at Fort Bragg. But um, he, so he called, I, you know, I said that, and then um, as he was treating me, I remember saying, and, and it's in my citation for Valor, that I asked him to treat the other people, leave me alone, treat the other wounded, which uh, is very magnanimous, of course. And it may be a product of when I got the morphine and kind of in la-la land, as I call it, you know, when you get morphine or uh, opioids of any kind. And um, and then, um, so he continued to work on me and I came out of the, uh, at the end of the attack, it was light by that time, maybe 6.37, I don't know how long it, it took, but I, would, I, I really never felt the pain. It never felt the pain. And I believe divinely and miraculously, number one, that God saved me and allowed me to live because if the mortar round had been, say, instead of about, as I figured out, maybe 18 inches away, and so, you know, a mortar round um, explodes in a cone, okay? So the, the further away you are, uh, the higher on your body, if you're standing, you get hit 
with shrapnel. So I was standing in, and I was close enough to the cone that it just hit my legs. And I have modest, um, I have modest pieces in my upper thighs, nothing above mid thigh. And then I, for some reason, I got some in my, in my right arm. I must maybe fell and, and something fell in, you know, pieces fell into me. So, uh, but if I had been, say, 24 inches away, I might have taken stomach wounds and been killed or uh, three feet away, treasure chest wounds or three and a half head wounds. So, I mean, I was, if you're going to say you were in a good spot to get hit by a mortar round, I was in a good spot because I wasn't killed, you know? So uh, that's kind of the way I uh, thought about it all through all these decades. So um, I came up out of the bunker to, to be taken on what we call our medevac flights, helicopters back to our MASH hospitals and play coup. And, the commanding officer of the camp was there and you could, you know, the, the mortar rounds had hit all the buildings. You could see the holes in the buildings and, you know, just, just a mess, you know, wood lying around and stuff. So once again, I, I'm still in La La Land, I presume, but what I did say to the camp commander, I still recall this. I said, um, Larry, I think his name was Gossett. I said, I'll be back this afternoon. I mean, obviously I wasn't going to be anywhere this afternoon except, you know, under anesthesia and getting my, right leg left leg taken off completely and the right leg fixed up so um that started a 15-month stay in the hospital so jimmy and i've stayed in contact through the years and uh jimmy never got a he he stayed and remained obviously in the camp and it was not till the next day that another special forces medic came in to help him out uh for his team and uh in the meantime he treated 70 wounded people i mean uh, i guess minor wounds for maybe americans and all besides the nine of us that were maybe i don't know how many got sent out by chopper you know um but in the camp and then the next day another medic came in and ripped out the shrapnel which was in his shoulder now he had never received a purple heart so he was coming to the dallas area to go to a um a, a motor a speedway race in Fort Worth in 2005, 16 years ago, about three months before April 30th, 2005, was the 30th anniversary of our final evacuation from Saigon, which uh, was very uh, vivid at the time, you know, people being lifted off a building and holding on to helicopter, you know, skid and holding on to airplanes, leaving the bases in the, in the few weeks before that and so forth. And uh, one of those debacles, not, not nearly as bad uh, as what has happened uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, the, Afghanistan was Saigon on steroids. So um, he told me, we were talking three months before, and I asked him about the purple eyes. I said, never got it, sir. I said, do you have the certificate that indicates you were wounded? He said, yes. I said, you send me the certificate. So I worked through Army Award Channels, and on uh, April 30th, 2005, at my hospital with an audience, I had the Purple Heart presented to him by two Medal of Honor recipients who were friends of mine and lived in Dallas. So it was really uh, an extraordinary situation for him. And I may be repeating what I said on a previous podcast, but we had the ceremony. One of my daughters came for the ceremony and the other one showed up that evening for a dinner with we had. Uh, Jimmy sent me a picture or someone took a picture of, of Jimmy being hugged by my daughter that was at the ceremony. You could see her, but his the back of his head. So he sent it to me and says, uh, so I, somebody sent it to me. So uh, two or three months later, Jimmy said, do you know what Christy told me when she hugged me? I said, no. 
and I always say it with great emotion, she said, thank you for bringing my daddy back home. And I may have said before, uh, when I give my testimonies of faith, I tell my audiences, uh, he brought his ministrations, his care to me on the battlefield, brought me back to the United States to live a life. Uh, but my Lord, I know when it's final that I'm gone, that my father's taken me to heaven. So that's kind of the story relative to Jimmy. I just talked to him a few minutes ago for something that I needed his help on. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, um, obviously, spirituality is very important in your own journey of healing. Um, so what was the, the physical and mental journey for you? I know, you, as you touched on prior, I think when we were speaking before, about finding yourself in certain, you know, mental health institutions, you know, where was the lowest point you got? And then what was it that really turned a corner for you and, and began that emotional healing? Well, uh, <clears throat> for about eight months, uh, what I found out as a psychiatrist who comes on head began without my knowledge, sneaking antidepressants into the normal pills that I had to take for pain. Um, so for the first six weeks, I had, um, morphine, Demerol, every three hours for six weeks. And the pain was so bad. Um, and I couldn't cough. I couldn't sneeze. I couldn't do anything without causing pain uh, down my down my legs. So um, I'd been back 10 days. And they took the right leg off and said, you know, Captain, you'll, you'll, you'll walk better with two artificial legs than one gimp leg and one artificial leg. So I did. And I had, um, I had been five foot nine, and uh, I'll, I'll repeat the story about getting up to six foot two uh, through the years. But um, he began sneaking antidepressants. I said sneaking because he didn't tell me. I don't remember. But they started giving me that with the other pills or giving me. After eight months, uh, I was really on probably low medication. But after eight months, it really hit me about what is happening. You know, and I started to get my artificial legs fitted and I started thinking into the future. Now, I had been, quote, a what I call a uh, a um, kind of a, a Christian that didn't really have a d distinct and definite personal relationship with Jesus the Christ as Savior. I mean, I went to church. I was an acolyte, you know, and uh, in the youth group at my church and, you know, went to church and. You know, when the chaplain came into our camp one time, I was the only one that went to a communion service in the camp. Nobody else wanted to go. I went, you know, and in Saigon, I went to church a couple of times with an Anglican church downtown Saigon. And um, so for eight months, I, I, I was I was doing relatively well and, and felt, OK, well, I go on with my life. I'll get my legs, go on with my life. Well, after eight months, uh, for some reason, uh, everything started bothering me. I started really worrying, number one. I didn't really have pain anymore. The wounds had been closed up. You know, they put I had skin grafts from my stomach. They took skin off my stomach, put it on the on the uh, stumps, as I call it. They call it residual limbs, but I call it stumps and um, <clears throat> covered up my wounds. So. <clears throat> I had not really started walking yet, <clears throat> started practicing a little bit. And uh, <clears throat> everything started to bother me. I mean, the sadness, and I had anger by that time, um, sadness about being hurt, uh, anger about um, being hurt, and then um, being scared about what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, what am I, how am I going to make a living? Um, what do I have to do? You know, I had only a wife, no children by that time. And she was there, moved to San Antonio from Dallas and was wonderful to me. You know, it was there twice a day, you know, two to 
two to four and seven to nine every day, had an apartment off post, which I got to go to once in a while. You know, in fact, probably every day. But I started being so scared. I went without sleep for four days. You know, you, you wrote in your book, One More Light, about how you all are sleep deprived, you know, in, in the uh, fire stations and so forth. And, you know, being having to know that, you know, you may be waked up at 11 or 2 or whatever the case may be. So, <clears throat> as you well know, uh, one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you is going without sleep because you need your sleep. So, basically, I was really started having religious ideation. Okay. Now, let me tell you something. What a psychiatrist told me later uh, years when I worked on the governor's staff, uh, psychiatrist of mental health, mental retardation that I was working with on something related to mental health program. He said, Alan, let me tell you why you had religious ideation. He said, when you lose a part of your body, like you did, uh, you really feel like you are so stunted. You are so down. You have lost a part of yourself. And <clears throat> so when you start to lose sleep and you start to have religious ideation, it relates to, oh, well, everything's going to be okay because I'm going to be something special. Now, this is very, very intimate, something I'm telling you, because I've told very few people through the years, but what do I have to lose at age 79, you know? Um, so he said, and I began to think, well, I'll become I'll get into politics and I'll become governor of Texas or I'll become president of the United States, you know, so it'll be okay. I can, it's all right that I've lost my legs. I will go on with my life and uh, I will be a devout Christian and, and I will become governor. I'll become president. I already worked out a cabinet, you know, and so on. So all these things are running through my mind. And um, uh, so I was obviously very not well emotionally, but, but that's the, that that's the, <clears throat> Supposedly, according to the psychiatrist I saw in the early 80s, I guess it was, 78, 79, uh, part of what I was going through at that time at the eight-month level. So it got to such a point that um, I had to be committed to a, the closed psychiatric ward at Brook Army Hospital. So I went in there for 14 weeks, and I was in my wheelchair. I had individual psychotherapy three times a week. Now, there were no elements whatsoever of spiritual dimension. It was strictly man's psychiatry, uh, you know, man's typical psychiatry type deal. My, my um, psychiatrist would, would in no way, shape or form a devout Christian. So he gave me no counseling in that regard. I got that later on when I had a, a, a bit of a relapse and when I was going through a divorce and had to see a psychiatrist again for a few sessions, not very many, because I, I was doing pretty well by then. But um, it, it was really tough because most of the, most of the, um, Patients, I, I believe, if I recollect the demographics, were soldiers who had really broken down in basic training. They'd been schizophrenics or, or they'd been somebody that, uh, you know, I only remember one or two other combat veterans that were in our group of about 40 uh, soldiers. And then I was moved to a um, uh, uh, an officer's group of about five of us. One of them had been an alcoholic and is being boarded out of the army. And I don't know what was with the other ones. But anyway, I was there for 14 weeks and uh, my wife would come. They have one meeting room at night where we could go into. <clears throat> and um, my wife came there, the, the Brigadier General who had wanted me originally to go to Korea uh, when I left the, the, the division commander's aid position, and that would have kept me out of Vietnam. And, you know, but I, I couldn't do a, an easy 
going to Vietnam, going to Korea rather than Vietnam. He came to see me. My parents came to see me. It was just a horrific time because uh, I was really working my way through getting better, getting stable. Okay. Now, a very interesting thing happened. Uh, about four or five years ago, I went down to San Antonio and that specific building, which was the closed psychiatric ward, very tough uh, standards relative to security, has been turned into like an army recruiting center or something, a headquarters. And so I went into the building and it's just kind of amazing. I talked to a lady one time and said, let me tell you something. And, and this is this relates to spiritual life. She says, let me tell you something. People here have sensed spirits, have sensed ghosts. One time she said, I left the building at night, the last one at night, and everybody was supposed to be out. And I was the last one to close the door. I looked up and there was somebody in a window. Okay. So I have put that together in the sense that I believe that there in the spiritual warfare world, there are demonic spirits, which I teach about and work with veterans about to to exercise in, in a modest way, not exorcism and um, deliverance ministry programs, you know, and services, but just in my own way, cast out demons. But she said we had, and I just believe that because there were so many hurt people there, so many people demonically oppressed and depressed, and so many bad spirits in that building, they had never left the building. And here we are, 40, 50, 45 years later when I went. So it was really an interesting closure to that building specifically where I spent 14 weeks, you know. So uh, I got out of that and it kind of slowly eased into getting a final set of legs and eventually leaving in probably August 68 and starting my MBA program in um, September 68 to get an MBA. Now, with with you again, you're talking about having the the antidepressants being put in the pain meds. Um, you know, when did what were some of the tools that you found that allowed you to climb out of of that depression that you found yourself in? Yeah. Well, one of the things that was important to me was to um, get involved. Okay. Now, for me, I didn't want to just live off. Uh, my disability compensation from the VA. And uh, if we, you know, some people go decades with compensation plus unemployment. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get a job. So I immediately started getting work toward getting a job, which I did within about, oh, six or eight months. Okay. Well, I actually got a job immediately working for Ross Perot, who's now deceased, but a very famous man that most people have heard of died about two years ago. And so I interviewed with him and I became his personal financial assistant in like early June, right after graduate school in 1970. So I was going to be his personal financial assistant, eventually taking care of the beginnings of what ended up being a really big fortune in real estate, oil and gas, and uh, stocks and bond investments and all. So he said, look, Alan, I want you to learn about oil and gas and um, investing um, and also um, real estate. And I want to train you for a year to take over my investment portfolio. Well, I went to New York City on an investigation, uh, an audit for a company on Wall Street that he wanted to buy. Okay, it was a major Wall Street institution uh, that had been there for a long time and eventually bought it. But that 11 day process was right after grad school, only 
two and a half years after my episode with with heavy post-traumatic stress that really caused a disorder. And, you know, post-traumatic stress could be all of us have a little bit of post-traumatic stress after we've been through traumatic experiences. I mean, uh, you know, uh, abused women, um, uh, abused children, uh, you firefighters and fires and uh, doing that and people killed next to you. And then same thing with law enforcement and definitely military people on the battlefield. So we all come out of those experiences with some issues of what I term for the army combat operating stress or post-traumatic stress. So, <clears throat> I put myself under pressure and my psychiatrist had told me to take a very low pressure job when I got out of the army and uh, I would be susceptible to relapses on my post-traumatic stress break with the emotional break I had in 68 for 10 years. And so what do I do? I go uh, to work for one of the most uh, important, successful, well-known businessmen in America. You know, I don't, some, I mean, I, I follow orders, but sometimes I, you know, edge a little bit and do what I want to do. So um, I, I put myself under pressure and I had to come back and literally be met at the airplane in Dallas from New York by my wife and by my psychiatrist whom I'd seen in graduate school who shot me with something, knocked me out. So I was in a, a closed, I was in a hospital here in Dallas for a week. So um, that had been just putting myself under personal stress and strain, wanting to do a good job, not sure what I should do or how to do it, but, you know, a lot of pressure right after graduate school. So I had to not work for Ross Perot, but very soon thereafter, I heard that Ross Perot had been director of a downtown bank, Republic National Bank that I eventually got a job at, had gone to bat for me to work at that bank. So I got a job about January of 1971. And, um, I, um, Worked there for about eight years during my what I call recovery period. And um, what I remember from which is really kind of horrifying to think is that I heard later that a that the president of the bank who had been an, an NCO, non-commissioned officer in the Army during World War II, had not wanted me to be hired by the bank because he thought that I would lose a lot of time and a lot of work time and not be a good employee. Well, of course, I showed him because eight years later, when the governor-to-be of Texas, just been elected, calls him up, who comes to my desk at the bank eight years later and says, the governor of Texas wants me to put you on leave of absence to go work for him in Austin as his appointee special assistant. And I said, oh, well, well, I'd like to do that. I said, well, we're, we'll approve it. So it's really kind of an interesting closure eight years later that I had. So anyway, I went to work and continued to see a psychiatrist for several years, took pills and so forth, and kind of working on rebuilding my self-confidence. Okay. So uh, it was important for me uh, after a traumatic situation, and it is for others with traumatic situations, get involved. Don't just sit at home feeling sorry for yourself, you know. Get yourself a job, pay attention at your job, work at it, take care of your family, don't drink, don't take drugs. I, I still had my antidepressants, but I never tried marijuana, obviously didn't go to any other harder drugs and drank a little bit. But with my antidepressants, I wasn't supposed to drink alcohol. So I didn't. I, I followed orders. So my anger was sometimes bad. And I, my, I will recollect with my wife, I was edgy. OK, so that's a, a, a normal part of our, our process of healing after something bad happens to us, these traumatic situations and these after effects. So 
got involved in community, got involved in politics, had a good job, did a good job at my job and uh, and kept advancing to where I became a vice president, uh, tried to watch my anger, be kinder to my wife, uh, fathered two children with her. And so I basically to deal with with what I had had with the issues, I just uh, focused on my life, focused on activities, focused on taking care of my family. And and so that's how I got out of it. So after about five or six more years to mid 70s, I was able to stop seeing a psychiatrist and stop taking pills. So I guess for me, I'm a success figure. In 1973, the POWs came back, uh, were brought back in about 600 or so from the prison uh, camps up in North Vietnam. And um, it was a very uh, poignant and emotional time for me. Uh, Ross Perot funded a um, a ceremony in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas where all of them were brought in by airplane and honored with a show. You know, Bob Hope was the MC, And um, uh, I was picked to represent all the wounded in action soldiers from World War II uh, from Vietnam. Uh, we had one uh, wife of a missing in action. We had two admirals, uh, one, one admiral, one Air Force general who had been senior POWs, they ran on in a Cadillac, open Cadillac, going around the Cotton Bowl floor. And then one um, KIA family, a widow, and then an MIA widow, a wife, and then myself and my wife. So we were honored, walked across between a Marine Honor Guard. So knowing before that work was to happen, I began remembering and recalling and say, well, well, maybe this is going to be part of my advancement with, you know, those dreams I'd had five years before. So anyway, that happened to me. But, you know, I, I stayed home for a week and, you know, I went to see my psychiatrist, whom I'd been seeing anyway. And so I, I got calmed down. But um, probably about 74 or so, uh, I had a church about six blocks away. And uh, a, a classmate of mine from West Point, Andy Seidel and Gale, he was a seminary student at Dallas Theological Seminary invited me to church. And, you know, all of us make excuses. Oh, that church is too far away. This church was six blocks away, for crying out loud. And so I had no excuse but to go. And I went. And I liked the informality of the church. It was not an official denomination. And uh, we got into what's called a uh, a, a family um, cell group, they called it, but just means a group of 10 to 12 families that met uh, maybe once a week. I don't know how often. And we prayed together. We, we talked together. And I, I began to get into my Bible. And uh, my classmate, Andy Seidel, started a Bible study that we had 10 Vietnam vets in. Uh, either they were single or they came with their spouses. And um, it, was, it was really warm hearted for us to talk to each other, pray with each other. So b- between getting into this group at a church, which I think is very important, you know, get into a faith group. I don't care what faith group it is. If, if, it, if a group relates to you, if the group reaches out to you, if the group means something to you, if you if you feel that it's, it's healing to you, which it was to me, and it expanded on my spiritual faith, and I developed what I call a personal relationship with, with my Father in Heaven, not just head knowledge of Christianity, but heart knowledge. So I really recognized and believed that Jesus is the Christ. He was sent by God 2,000 years ago to set an example of how to live your life. And so the the writing of the Old Testament was all leading up to a, a, an explanation of the sins and the the, the maladies of humanity and, 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 um, and civilizations and countries and 
you know, Israel and the judgments that God brought on them. And then, okay, here's my son. He's going to come down there. He came down, he wrote the, you know, and, um, and um, witness to the New Testament writings. This is how I want you to live. So if you study that, it is a way to live your life. You learn about spiritual warfare. You learn about uh, demonic uh, infestation, demonic uh, oppression, how to get rid of demonic spirits, how to go on with your life, how to pray, how to pray, what to pray, to get your life straight, to move on and get ready for the end days, whatever it is for me to go to heaven. You know, I know I'm going to heaven. So, you know, I don't want to hurt. You know, I just say, God, I pray you take me in my sleep. And it's time to go. But I have peace about it because I know I'm going to have it. I know there's something other, something left. I don't need any pills in La La Land to put me up in the ether somewhere, you know, in my feelings. So that's kind of the story. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, especially as you said, you know, the 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 intimate part that you hadn't shared before. But I think it, it's this kind of vulnerability, this kind of you know, rocky path that we all need to hear. And as you touch, whether it's Christianity, whether it's, you know, Judaism, whether it's Islam, whether it's, you know, whatever path, I think that's a that's a huge element. You know, if we're just waking up, going to work, coming home, waking up, going to work, coming home, and we're not connected to something else, then that's absolutely one of the, the legs of the stool that's missing. Well, having affinity with other people is very important, not to isolate yourself. Now, you know, I know I've known a lot of veterans, you know, my my connections are not law enforcement, first responders. My my relationships through the decades have been veterans, mainly com- a lot of combat veterans. And a lot of people that didn't go to war, I still appreciate their getting in uniform and so forth. But uh, I had a very interesting thing happen to me uh, beginning about 10 years ago where I would be invited by chaplains. I, I was awarded by the uh, a Centurion Award, uh, an annual award to a, a Christian who, um, who, who, who is an example of Christianity by the National Association of Evangelicals Chaplains Commission. Okay, so I was awarded that up in Alexandria. So uh, it got me uh, involved and introduced to military chaplains all over the country. I've gone to all the major military bases in the country to include uh, a mar- couple of Marine bases, a couple of Navy bases, Air Force base, but mainly Army bases on the major posts in the United States. Uh, during Iraq and Afghanistan, we would we set up what's called warrior transition units, warrior transition battalions at all the major posts. So wounded, sick, come back from the wars, men and women, and they are they are kind of like still in the military. They still have to report in for duty, but they get psychiatric care, they get psychological care, they get medical care to either get ready to be released from active duty or well enough to go back on active duty. So many chaplains invited me, and so I went as a, their guest, all right? Now, my first book, Wounded Soldier Healing Warrior, um, they would ask for I'd offer, look, I can get you at my author's cost two, three hundred for your attendees copies of my book. So that's a lot of where my book went. And I have not too many reviews, amazingly, for the first book, but some powerful reviews. One man said, I read your book and I became a Christian because of the reading of your book, which was very heartening to me. And um, so I would go there. And the chaplains were always reticent about my proselyting, my Christianity. So the approach that I eventually took was, now I would just tell my story at first and my healing process. But eventually I got to the point where I believe God gave me an approach to take, which is this. I would say, look, 
I would look at the audience. I said, now, look, I don't care whether you're Jewish. I don't care whether you're Muslim. I don't care whether you're Hindu. I don't care whether you're Native American. I don't care whether you're Christian. I said, what is important to each one of you is to get healed, either from your physical wounds or for your emotional, psychological wounds. This is my story of how I healed. And I healed through my Christianity. Okay, I'm not here to proselyte you on Christianity, but if you're um, rabbi in Judaism or you're imam in Islam or you're whatever it is in Hindu and you're not all the others, uh, whatever it is for you, you're medicine man and Native American or whatever, um, if, if they can help you heal, go for it. You know, I said, this is what worked for me. Christianity worked for me. I said, go to your chaplain, talk to your chaplain about how to help you get through it all, but don't just... Work, you know, take man's medicine and man's pills. I said, take, get the spiritual approach in whatever faith walk you're in. And that's the approach that I began to take later on in the, in the latter years of, of my approach and uh, the, the methodology I used in my talks. And I think that was a God gift to me. And, and that's what I do now. You know, I said, okay, look, you know, I know, a, you know, I know a, a woman who, who came from a Middle Eastern country and was um, with the Islamic faith. And, and you know, she said, look, I, I uh, became a Christian. My prayers began to be answered. So for her, that was the, the walk that she took and changed. So, you know, if, if Islam helps you, work it. Being a Muslim, work it. You know, I know, and she knows as an example, and many of my friends know that prayer works. Now, i got to tell you a very interesting answer to prayer. This is amazing. I volunteered without telling my first wife about going to Vietnam. I, I knew that she would be appalled. You know, I had this chance to be a general's aide, go to Korea, get out of the war, come back, and uh, it was over and it was another year in the United States. Get out after five years because she wanted me to resign. And my tour was over and, and going to civilian life, you know, become a stockbroker or sell insurance or, you know, whatever, in Dallas, Texas, and play golf, you know, join a country club, the good old American life in, 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 in America, you know, free enterprise system and all that. So I knew that I could not go to my future reunions at West Point with uh, with all my the majority of my classmates, very few not going to Vietnam, having gone to Vietnam and, and served. And I knew that my personal pride and my sense of duty, honor, country for West Point would not be uh, good for me if I missed the war. So without telling her in 1967, no, 66, I volunteered for Vietnam. And all it takes is a letter that you send to your branch headquarters. And so I said, you volunteer for war, they're going to take you, you know. So I volunteered. So, you know, I expected to be okay, do my work, feel good, come back, have another one-year tour of duty, get out of the Army and still satisfy her needs for me to be a civilian. So, um, and then what happened to me after 10 and a half months of a 12-month tour, the severe wounds that that incapacitated me emotionally and very much through the years physically and the things she had to go through as a wife. So sometime or other, and I, I have a recollection, it might've been when I was under morphine. And so it was kind of like a truth serum, you know? And so I admitted to her that I'd volunteered for Vietnam. Well, she was appalled and she was mad and she was angry for 25 years. 
Okay. In the early 90s, I had gone to a Bible study. Once again, this is how important they are. And the, the, the pastor and I go, some reason or other, there was about 30 people there. For some reason, we're by ourselves in the library at this home. And he said, Alan, are there any specific things that really still bother you today? I said, yeah, you know, there is. Uh, my wife has never forgiven me for volunteering for Vietnam without telling her. Now, I know that even if I had told her, she would have said no. Even if I prayed with her and, and um, you know, God would not necessarily have answered the prayer the way I want, which is how prayer goes. You know, I want this. My will is this. The Lord says, that's not what I want for you. So, you know, it, it's yes, no, or maybe, or wait, whatever the case may be. So um, my prayer uh, to him, my, my request to him was that she would forgive me because she was on her way to divorce. And I thought that was a major issue. A lot of the issues related to the stresses and strains of being the spouse of a severely disabled war veteran and everything we've been through, okay, through the years. And uh, anger was one of my issues, I have to admit, because I felt insecure. So he said, Alan, we're going to pray a concept called labors of the harvest, and typically, labors of the harvest to me had meant labors of the harvest out there to, to draw people in to accept Christ as their Savior and uh, become Christians, okay? But he said, this is the concept I want you to use. He says, let us pray that there will be a labor of the harvest into her path, either by something she reads, something she hears on the radio, maybe a podcast, I don't know if they had them then, or something she sees on television, or someone tells her that the Bible says that the Lord said, you must forgive all others or you will not be forgiven. I said, well, heck, we'll work that. Why not? Now, sometime prior to that, I had been um, with a youth group of, of reserve officer training corps uh, uh, students from Duke University. I'd taken them to a conference. So after one of the sessions, we were sitting around about four or five of us in my bedroom. And so I uh, told them, was talking about my divorce, which is imminent with my wife. Uh, she was on the road for that. And um, they said, one of the young ladies said, you know, Mr. Clark, um, we can pray that something happens that she will not want to divorce you. But says, that's not the way it works, Mr. Clark. Says, you know, she has a free will. God chooses uh, to allow us free will and to make our own decisions based upon what we think is right or want to do and so forth. Then it's not always right. It's not always the right thing to do. But she needs to make the choice of her own volition to forgive you and maybe not divorce you. And I said, so, you know, major, major thing that I learned from a college student for crying out loud. So anyway, so then afterwards, we had this meeting with this pastor after the Bible study. So we prayed that there would be a labor of the harvest into our path. And so, you know, I prayed to God in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in agreement with him. So we prayed that. I said, you know, I left the meeting and I said, that'll never work. Two weeks later, I am in Durham, North Carolina, where I'm working for um, a mortgage company. She called me on the phone. And once again, she had started divorce proceedings. She calls me on the phone one night and she's, she's in Texas. She says, Alan, uh, I must forgive you for volunteering for Vietnam without telling me. And I said, and I'm just in shock. I'm in shock two weeks later. And I said, why? She said, I turned on Trinity Broadcasting Network or something last night and the uh, woman evangelist um, in Denver, I don't even remember her name, she said in her talk, sermon, whatever, 
lesson. She said, the Bible says 18 times that if you do not forgive all others, you will not be forgiven. She says, I must be forgiven, so I will forgive you. Bingo. Okay, you know, you talk about a lesson in prayer, how it works divinely and supernaturally. It works exactly what we prayed two weeks before. God put a TV program in her sight. She hears that. Bingo. It's over. She still divorced me. Okay. But that that over. Yeah. 25 years later. 25 years later. I mean, you come a relief and uh, we have a very good relationship today. She, she lives in uh, another state with my younger daughter and uh, the grandchildren. And, um, um, we're very, we pray for our children together. Uh, we have a very good relationship. Uh, she has a relationship that's very cordial with my current wife that I married 17 years ago. So it, it's really uh, wonderful. When I originally was divorced, I mean, I was bitter. I was really bitter. And I was sad and I was angry. Combination of all those emotions to lose my marriage. Uh, and I was single for nine years and um, then got remarried. But I, I got over that. I realized, I thought back and recognized and realized what she had gone through. So we married to a guy that comes home, takes his legs off in a wheelchair at night on the weekends, you know, and um, made a decent living and, you know, was on the governor's staff, but a lot of pressure on me on the governor's staff and all the different things that I had to go through. And then a very significant uh, business setback when I went in business on my own in real estate in Texas in the 80s. So the combination of all these constant battering in a way, and not physical, you know, but an emotional battering and situational battering, which most of us have it sometime or other. And it was elongated for me through, through you know, three decades before she divorced me. Yeah, well, it's such a powerful testimony. I think that another element of, you know, that a lot of people forget is you have, as you said, you know, the, the PTS from combat or the fire service or you know law enforcement or whatever it is but then you have relationship issues you have financial strains you have all these other compounding elements that you know we we forget there's a, there's a kind of a jenga element that if we don't address some of the the foundational ones eventually you know there's going to be enough stress there that's going to cause a catastrophic failure and, and i think that's important that we identify not only what we did what we saw but also as you touched on earlier childhood trauma you know relationship issues financial issues um stress at work you know working for people who <laughs> make your your life even worse i mean these are all compounding elements they're not what they're, they're what i call unenlightened leaders and managers you know a leader uh, works with people. A manager just shuffles paper from the inbox to the outbox. You know, that's what a manager does. But a true leader cares about his people, her people, and um, and um, tries to develop them and not just maybe keep them in the same job. But what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do in your career? What are your goals? And that's what I tried to do as someone that people working under me and what I gave. Uh, what I expressed in talks that I gave when I was at the National Veterans Affairs Department for four years, when I was invited to tell my story, much less uh, leadership uh, techniques and talent and uh, uh, and talent uh, leadership um, ways to to take care of your people. So I, I did all that. You know, um, I have talked to probably hundreds of veterans through the years, or spouses, girlfriends 
boyfriends, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and, you know, I, the way I personally, and I'm not a counselor, you know, I'm a mentor by all means, because counseling is a specific field, you know, that you get licensed for. So I'm a mentor and uh, I will ask them, you know, what are the triggers? What happened to you? What? And I've heard every story from World War II to Korea to Vietnam to the Balkans to the current war wars, okay, that we're finally out of the last one from Afghanistan. And I have put a lot of those on my website, which is combatfaith.com, combatfaith.com. And I also have put about 90 entries through the years on combatfaith.blogspot.com. Okay, so combatfaith.com tells my story and my faith walk and has uh, has specific uh, uh, anecdotes for the different wars and and the spiritual approach to helping them deal with those anecdotes and their their personal examples and so forth. And uh, so those are those are that's on combatfaith.com and then stories of faith and patriotism and citizenship. And um, things that have meant something to me are on the blog spot, combatfaith.blogspot.com. So I have been very busy through the years, you might say. You know, I have a 501c3 called Combat Faith, which I primarily support my, by myself just for my travels and expenses for my for my lay ministry and so forth. So I've been very busy, much less these three books that I got into, you know, and, and began writing and getting published. And so... I've not been bored. You know, I keep thinking that at age 79, having retired officially at age 62 and uh, kind of taken, you know, a, a, a detour a couple of times to retire. I'm, I am not, I'm not retired. Stay busy all the time and probably never will retire. I'll probably be busy with activities and people and different things until it's over. Well, you touched on the fact that you work with, um, you know, veterans um, in different positions that you held. I've, as a, as a civilian, as someone outside the, the military, what I have got, what seems to be a reoccurring kind of message from so many of the veterans that have been on here is facilities like Walter, Walter Reed are doing incredible things, you know, with, with you know, amputees and a lot of these injuries. And there are amazing men and women within that organization. But where... It seems to be reoccurring where the drop in the ball is actually on the mental health side. I'm hearing over and over again, as you touched on way back in the Vietnam era, the prescription of of meds. Um, and you know, there I mean, there's some incredible alternative therapies that I'm hearing and doing amazing things. Um, without loading the question, what are you seeing that is that we can do better when it comes to taking care of our veterans coming home? Well, let me tell you the story about a now deceased psychiatrist. Okay. This psychiatrist until through into his fifties had been Jewish, whether he was active at at a synagogue or not, you know, there's a variety of, of segments of Judaism, you know, the Orthodox, the, uh, what they call modern, you know, and then um, people that go to the, go to the, study the Old Testament and so forth. So I don't know where he was, but he was watching television in his 50s, and he became a devout Christian, and he became an evangelical Christian. He became what you call, what is called a spirit-filled Christian, which which uh, tends to be either 
charismatic, if you know that term, or evangelical for your, your people to hear it. But he was a very devout man of faith by about age 60 or so. We got to know each other. And he told me that he had counseled uh, officially or treated officially in mental health clinics at the Dallas VA and at the Fort Sam Houston Brook Army Medical Center. He said, Alan, every time that I tried to edge into the spiritual dimension of the healing process, besides just man's psychotherapy and giving my patients pills, I was, I was lassoed and I was pulled back. If I put anything in the after action clinical report, I was chastised. He said, I really became very, very saddened and disappointed because I would talk to men and because of my own Christianity that I had developed in my 50s after having practiced psychiatry for 30 years, knowing the combination of psychotherapy and um, psychotalk, whatever you want to call it, different methodologies, the only one that I knew would really work was to get to the spiritual dimension. He had a specific example that he told me that I may have on the website or whatever, where um, he said, I had a fellow that was just so overwrought with his a veteran, with his post-traumatic stress and had the disorder aspect of it. And he came into me one time and I began to talk to him about faith. This is before I started getting pulled back. And, and he had been coming into the clinic to see me or others for weeks and when he left my office that day, my secretary came and said, what did you do to that guy? I have never seen him like that. In other words, he had had a breakthrough, but it was because of the spiritual dimension that that psychiatrist brought into the counseling session. Okay. So very telling story. So that's one of the things that they will not allow. Now, let me tell you a classic example of that for myself. I wanted to be able to go to the psychiatric ward and the um therapy for combat veterans in in um, talk sessions as it would be at the veterans um what would they call it the veterans center the outpatient deal plus the hospital and they would not let me go in and tell my spiritual tell my story to include the spiritual dimension they didn't want to have anything to do with spiritual dimension to the healing process okay so i went to a a, a meeting one day years ago 20 25 years ago at my hospital, the VA hospital, with the chaplain in the room. And I asked the chaplain, I had a combat vet that had been wounded four times in Vietnam, a Marine. Uh, He was in the room with me. And so we were talking to the chaplain about coming in and having an opportunity to talk to the people in the psychiatric ward. I worked that angle. The the doctors had, had thwarted me. So I said, well, I worked the chaplain. And he said, well, you have to be you have to be officially ordained as a minister. So here I am in my late 60s, early 60s. And I said, um, uh, or late 50s, whatever it was. I said, I don't have time to go to seminary because to me, seminary was a three or four year full-time program. I don't have time to do that. He said, well, you, you would have to be an ordained minister for to be from my staff and go up and and have sessions. I said, well, let me ask you this. You have seven chaplains on your staff. I said, could you find one of those chaplains that would volunteer as part of his duties to come at night for me and my friend here to have sessions, tell him our healing story, because he'd become a Christian also, okay? And he said, no, I wouldn't have anybody. That chaplain was so hard-headed as a chaplain to even allow us, to authorize us to ask 
one of his people to do that was, I don't have anybody. And later I talked to the other man that was with me, he says, Alan, he said, and he'd had very bad PTSD, mother veteran friend in the, in the room. He said, I almost went across the table and hit that guy. I was so angry at him for not giving us a chance, you know, to, to have it. So that is, um, that is part of what is the problem. You know, I had a um, surgery down there at that hospital. And so the chaplain at the time, and it comes in and doesn't offer me any real spiritual connection. All they want to do is make sure that my paperwork for um, whatever you have to sign off about um, somebody else, POA or something uh, where, you know, somebody else takes care of you if something happens. He didn't talk about spiritual dimension or anything. You know, and, and and for years I've just gone to to, to to sermon after sermon after sermon, and it's the it is kind of like what I call the social gospel, you know, and it's just go along to get along, and oh, God is love, and love everybody, and love. Well, God is love, yes, but Dad, he has. There's the end. the 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 other side of the system of good in the world, and that's the evil side demonically inspired by Satan who came down, shoved out of heaven, whenever it was with one third of the angels that are down here that become demons that work us over. So, you know, the majority of the church is just, they don't want to get tough on sermons and talk about repentance. They don't want to talk about confession. They don't want to talk about really developing a heart relationship with the Lord to get your lives straight. They don't want to, that will scare people. Okay, so they don't want to lose people and the, the, the congregation dwindles down or they're big contributors. They they churches, for the most part, and denominations are businesses. They're businesses and they have people that have jobs and they want to make a touchy feeling, make people feel good. That's not what I do when I personally counsel. I get to the heart of the issue, find out what the spiritual dimension is, what the spiritual warfare dimension is, and the attacks that they have on them. And I say, look, don't drink. You should have anger management. Be proud of having been a soldier. And, you know, confess your sins and uh, repent. Forgive all others and get out of these um, mood um, changers such as alcohol and drugs and so forth and and settle down with the marriage that you're in and be a good kind man and I try to inspire them to have been strong enough and brave enough and courageous enough to have qualified for military service to go to war whether or not we, we believe that the war has issues for me in Vietnam of, of not being worthwhile and losing the war. And same thing over here, you know, 2,300 of our men died in Afghanistan. Well, that's the, that's it. Political decisions, but you were strong enough to have gone and survived and you're back here now go on with the rest of your life. So that's kind of the approach that I take on trying to help them heal. I don't I, I go off on these tangents, man. I'm, I apologize. But no, don't I have, apologize. I love tangents. I relate these anecdotes of my life and lessons that I've learned and what's important to me. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's, you know, that's it. We need to hear this as well. We need to hear this kind of raw emotion, you know, and I think that you don't hear spirituality discussed very much when it comes to mental health, you know, and it's, I've had, you know, people on here that found Christianity, for example, and that that was the thing, you know, and, and whether, as you said, whether it's, whether you call it prayer, whether you call it meditation, whether you call it hiking, you know, in the woods, whatever it is, you're, you're being one with God at the end of the day. And yeah, if you don't have that connection... 
Yeah, if it works for you. Now, another anecdote just came to my mind the second time, so I've got to say it. I was a public affairs officer, and many veterans would come to see me, okay? So one veteran came in one time, and I don't know, just showed up. You know, I guess he heard about me, so he shows up. And um, he's, uh, we're talking, and I said, what are your issues? He said, well, um, my son um, was present when uh, there was a murder that occurred, and so that bothers him a lot, and he's alienated from me and uh, we don't talk or anything. He lives with me, but we don't talk or anything. I said, okay, would you like to pray about that? And so, you know, I prayed in my office with guys all the time, you know, and uh, I said, let's pray that there would be a breakthrough and that there would be uh, an, an outreach and an opening that he would begin to relate to you and you all can have conversation and good father-son relationship again. He came into it, he says, Mr. Clark, that prayer worked. All of a sudden, my, my son started um, communicating with me and we have developed a beginning of a good relationship again. So there was a classic example where I prayed with him, suggested specifically what needed to happen, prayed to God not to have a labor of the harvest into that kid's path to get along with your dad, honor thy father and thy mother. But you know, the, the Holy spirit worked on that guy and because we prayed and we asked for power from heaven to do something and it did. And I've got classic examples of that. You know, classic example. You know, I wrote that first book, Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. It was originally just a paperback called Oh God, I'm Dead back in the 80s. And then I um, sophisticated it to where it was published by Zenith Press of Minneapolis, Minnesota, 14 years ago, 2007. Ross Perot got hold of um, Larry King. I was on Larry King's show in 2007. After that show, when I talked about this book, I was number one on Amazon that night. Probably five minutes, <laughs> whatever the number of books that were bought. But uh, it tells my story. It's basically out of print. There's a few still left, but I tell my story and uh, my, my faith walk. And I ended with a people talk about a 12 step program. I have a 12 step program in the back that I really didn't identify as a 12 step program. And a friend of mine read it when it was, Alan, you didn't realize you have your own 12 step program in the back of the book. I said, no, I went back to the book. And kind of, yeah, there are 12 steps. So anyway, that's what I did for that one. And I've had some, uh, not very many reviews, you know, and that's the one that went to all the troops, the chaplains bought them, but uh, I've had some strong reviews, number one, but people have just, um, uh, you know, still from time to time, a few people want to buy it, even though just a few listed, you know, and so forth. So that was my commercial. I apologize. No, don't that. apologize. I and mean, that's one of the reasons of this podcast is to let people know about other people's work. Now, your most recent book, um, Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money. Um, I want to talk about that because you touched on, you know, the the cost to our men and women of combat, you know, and I've talked about this, you know, I did a few episodes that really definitely focus somewhat on the withdrawal because me as a civilian I saw even from as far back as I stand you know from the military I saw the impact on our veterans I saw the kind of guilt and the shame even though it was you know unjust because what they did over there was it was incredible I see these layers of weight on their shoulders of you know was it worth it you know we lost all these people I've got these things that I carry around in my head um, but another side to that whole thing is obviously the industrial military complex and you know I you know don't talk about this much because I'm not well versed in it but from basic economics if you have companies that get very rich from war then you don't have to be a genius to figure out that some people want war to continue. Some people want us to send our men and women over because they're going to have financial gain. So 
Um, talk to me about, you know, why you wrote this latest book and just some of your perspectives of, you know, of that side of war, just so we can kind of balance the conversation a bit. Well, I have read extensively and um, thought extensively about warfare from my own war. If I hadn't gone to war and say not been hurt, especially and come back and just live that good old life, I'd have probably just, you know, gone to church, been a Sunday Christian or whatever, you know, and played golf and, you know, raised my family and whatever the case may be. But, but I have thought extensively and read extensively about warfare historically. And I have uh, written in this book, extensively about, uh, number one, the, the, the coming of the Christ in the New Testament from the Old Testament. So I've set the groundwork spiritually. Then I've talked about spiritual warfare, good versus evil. And then I, I've talked about the institutions that I believe are interested in what I would call a um, joining together and in the in the supposed interest of peace and stopping wars and let us all get along together you know <clears throat> and so let's have the united nations and uh which i believe um <clears throat> has a worthy purpose to be served but i think they get involved too much in our individual sovereignty which is very important to me <clears throat> sovereignty for america because if we are the only we in Iceland are the only two surviving republics, believe it or not. And, you know, our own Declaration of Independence plus Constitution plus Bill of Rights plus what we have set up as what we are all about that has never been equaled and never will be equaled again and is under assault in many ways in our countries right now, country right now, admittedly. But that is what we need to focus on the Constitution that is set up for the United States of America. So I have come to the conclusion that um, notwithstanding what the end result is, bad result, which is us, the troops, the people that go into the military for a variety of reasons, either daddy served and, and I want to be like daddy who went to World War II or went to Vietnam or whatever. And um, I want to prove myself. I want to make a, I want to start out before I go to college, maybe or after college, I want to serve my country. I'm a patriot. And so uh, for a variety of reasons, I want the education benefits, you know, whatever the case may be. I want to grow up. I want to get out of the house. So for all these myriad of reasons, we go into the military. So we don't understand the really big picture of why the wars get started. We, it takes time afterwards to find out why Vietnam happened, why Balkans happened, why Iraq and Afghanistan happened, and study history. So we don't any we don't have anywhere near the big picture. But there are people out there that for economic reasons, for financial reasons, for power reasons, whatever the case may be, which is which which I talk about in my book, even for religious reasons, okay? The religious wars of the 1600s, the religious wars that came about after the Protestant Reformation in 1517 for the, the Catholics wanting to hold on to their power. And the Protestants say, look, we, we don't want to be Catholic. We want to be Protestant. This is how we want to worship. And so the wars between Protestants and Catholics and, um, you know, the, the Huguenots who were the Protestants in France were, were persecuted, you know, the, uh, Islam has persecuted Christians. Islam has moved up what I call the left flank into Spain and into France and the right flank into Austria and were pushed back, you know, and so forth. So we have all these historical deals where, where that faith walk wanted more power and wanted control and had to be pushed back by the Christian forces. So not just that, but, but you know, all the different um, 
religious wars, the uh, the political wars, the 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 economic wars, you know, the, the wars in Central America that we sent Marines into. We had interest in Cuba and ownership by Americans of cane fields, okay, sugar fields and so forth. And so that's part of why we didn't want to lose that, you know, when the insurrection started against Spain in 1898 and so forth. We didn't want to, uh, you know, obviously we had a variety of reasons that caused the Civil War, which is the worst killing war that America's ever been in. And then, of course, World War I was uh, started out as economic competition in the late 1800s, early 1900s between England and Germany, okay? So you've got all these armaments countries, companies who really like to sell weapons, and they sell to both sides. You know, companies sold to the Russians and the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese War, 1905. And, you know, the, they have no morals or no ethics. Now, the, the military-industrial complex likes to hire high-ranking retired officers. And all the co- countries have done that. And they we do it today. And so they're on the board of directors getting good director fees because of contacts that they have and the name that they have built up to be known and so forth if something needs to be talked about. Now, you know, for instance, when, when uh, President Trump wanted to reduce our presence presence in Syria. Now, I don't know totally all about that, but, you know, there's always complications in, in decisions politically. But, you know, as soon as troops started coming back, being withdrawn, and therefore bombs and bullets and drones would not be needed as much, you know, some of the directors on the military companies, you know, said, oh, this is the wrong decision. Okay, well, they're being paid as directors. And so if the president of the company says, hey, look, um, you know, we're going to lose so-and-so contract. I'm just speculating. We're going to lose so-and-so contract for this and that and that war zone or Afghanistan, whatever the case may be. We don't want that to happen. So uh, we want you to get out there publicly and denounce that and talk against it and make the case against it. So that's a classic example. Now, Anglican bishops and former members of parliament were on the board of directors of Vickers Company of Britain. Now, when in the world can a man of faith or a woman of faith justify in history or today, even if that's the case, being on a board of directors of an armaments company that sells bullets to kill people? Okay, either directly in warfare or what we call the, um, you know, the the civilians, millions and millions and millions of civilians killed through the years, you know, by Stalin and Mao Zedong, et cetera, and um, collateral damage in the wars that we go to, you know, by mistakes and so forth. They're just there. So they suffer, not just us, but the civilians suffer. So I, I've uh, studied that. I've studied spiritual warfare and the institutions that um, that get people in uh, prime positions in government and, and fulfill the policies of those institutions, the people that promote them. And um, they don't want to go against them when they're in their position. So if somebody that, that they owe something to calls them, we'd like this policy fulfilled. You know, a classic individual example example was a, a friend of mine served in Afghanistan. They had a guy they wanted to take out, okay, a bad guy. So they had a, a fellow tribesman that came and said, hey, I'll take him out for thus and so dollars. That was refused, so, but they put a drone, which cost whatever amount of money, in, and they took him out with a drone. Well, I mean, man on man to take out the bad guy could have happened for a lot less money than a, a big drone being sold by the military industrial complex 
and used in that war. And here we are out of Afghanistan, and people are already saying, oh, we may need to go back in. Okay, well, if we need to go back in, why did we ever leave? And I know Trump had his departure plan, you know, it was as of May 1st, actually, but he had a four-phase program, as I understand, with the military last. This Afghanistan debacle <laughs> didn't get the civilians and the special uh, um immigration visa interpreters and so forth that work for us out. They just, if they showed up at the gate and the Taliban let them through with some of their people, they were, they, they came into our gates. We didn't check them. We didn't check them for COVID, whatever the case may be. Bring them to the United States, bring them to Qatar, bring them in as refugees, hundred thousand or so all over the country. We don't know how many of them were really deserving of coming to the good old USA, you know? And so um, that's kind of it. You know, I'll elaborate if you have any sp more specific questions. It's an overview of what I try to cover in this book. And I cover Civil War, uh, Spanish-American, what I call the banana wars, you know, where we try to support, we went into those countries to support companies like the banana company down in Guatemala, you know, and Honduras, and uh, the banking, the bankers that had investments down in the Caribbean and so forth. World War I, uh, I, I didn't get past um, the, um, let me see, Revolutionary War, which has some horrible examples of how people in Philadelphia, the Quakers, they continue to sell to the British because they had real money, real gold. They wouldn't sell to the American Revolutionary War troops because we had script, which was worthless. So those people enjoyed the benefits of the free enterprise system and making money before and during and after the war, but they did not support our troops, okay? Our troops at Valley Forge and Fort Ticonderoga and during the Civil War, the hospitals, I, I, I talk about all those different things. So we are the residue. We are, we are the flora and flotsam or whatever they call it after a ship goes down in the ocean, you know? We are the, we are the results of it. We went in for the reasons I defined. We don't know as young people. We go serve our country. And yet behind the scenes are all these forces that are economic forces that are coming out of either secrecy with people that are behind the scenes, all the scenes, or people in boardrooms who have never served. And, and that's what really angers me. They make the decisions through the politicians to get us off to war without a plan. Now, I heard a brigadier general the other day who had been an ambassador. And he said, you know, for 20 years, we've sent people in to command our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, um, you know, Lincoln had, I think it was Lincoln that had a policy of, look, you either win or you lose or you're fired. He said, you know, these generals continued to go to Afghanistan for 20 years and say, you know, and they kind of punch their ticket for um, their positions and so forth. And they didn't win. We've lost eventually. Um, uh, but, but they should, you know, the, the president just said, you win, you win that war or I'm relieving you. Okay. You win, lose, or get relieved instead of just two or three years there on a tour and quote, holding the line or whatever, instead of going in and getting the job done or getting the heck out. You know? Yeah. Well, it's so, it's so important to hear. And thank you for that because, um, you know, again, that's to me, one of the, like I said, one of the stressors, I think for, for our military and, uh, you know, just witnessing it myself. I went to, I went home, I went back to England a few weeks ago and went to the Imperial War Museum 
And you, they did such a great job of telling the story of World War One, and it begins, as you said, with the economic struggle in Europe, you know, and then it ended up with you know the assassination that led to the just insane bloodbath over you know fields um, in in World War One. But then you go to World War Two, and you know you see demonization of of you know historically known as the Jewish people, but when you actually again research it. It was anyone that opposed the Nazi party, basically. You know, the Jews obviously were the scapegoats. They were the ones that they were trying to eradicate. But there was everything else, black and gay and gypsy and political opponents and everyone else. Catholic, Catholic priests. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, every every religion that wasn't, you know, <laughs> aligned with the whatever the hell Hitler was believing in, the, the Satanism or whatever his thing was. But that, as British, as, you know, um, all the allies, you know, it's... That's one where you're like, okay, this is a justifiable risk to send our men and women to go and stop this horrendous treachery. But that's just it. You know, to me, me, this is my personal opinion. I don't think we've seen good leaders in positions in a long, long time. And I think that our system with the lobbying and, you know, basically lining the pockets of politicians has created a very corrupt system. And the fact that you can send American children, because that's, you know, all pretty much what you were when you went to Vietnam. You know, most of our, our men and women in uniform are barely out of high school. Yeah. If you're going to ask them to do that, it has to be for a reason that is 100% justified. But if we're sending our, our people over and then prolonging wars, which I seem to hear a lot from, from Afghanistan specifically, the special operations saying we could have had it done in a couple of years. Then that's something that the, the you know the the general public, the citizens of of each country need to know and be aware of and rise up against because to make money off the blood of Americans is disgusting. Well, well it is, and and that's uh, the thesis of my book, "The Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money," which is self published. So there's plenty of copies available of that, you know. But I go through all that, and and uh, you know, it, it's really power and money, the combination. And we heard something the other night on one of the one of the programs we listened to or watched about how power uh, and seeking a power actually has a, a chemical impact in your brain. You know, I mean, um, you know, for uh, for sex, for drinking, for drugs, it does something in your brain. Well, power is another thing that does something in your brain. So these politicians get in power and uh, they get put in special investment deals. Okay. I've been uh, privy to information about specifics about somebody going to a politician. Oh, listen, this is going to be a good deal. Maybe insider information on a stock. And, you know, and supposedly there's a law in Congress, which was just passed that if you're in a, in a, a closed session, congressional meeting and you hear something that has impact on stocks, you can't go out and take advantage of it. You're, you're, and they, they use their spouses to take advantage of it. You know, that's how they do it. Um, and, and a lot of, a lot of our politicians have been compromised either sexually or ethically or monetarily. And, uh, they're, they, they are, they are compromised. And so when that person that knows things about them, maybe photograph them, they have them, they have them to vote the way they want to. And they get they, they get so in many cases, so many of them are very, very wonderful, civic minded and, and wonderful servants of the people. OK, it's not everybody, but unfortunately, personally, at my level, I believe probably the majority of them are power hungry and they, they like their position. They like to to be held in this high vaunted position, you know, back in their communities and uh, up there and treated like they're little mini gods, like, 
uh, in, in Greece or Roman, Roman civilization and um, make money on the side. And they retire with very good benefits. They don't have to obey the rules and the laws that the little people have to deal with. You know, I write in my book about the sheep and the lambs who are controlled by the wolves and the serpents. The serpents are the really bad ones that deliberately do it. The wolves are some of the people they use that, that don't necessarily know what's behind what the serpents are making them do. But the fact is that the lambs and the sheep are the ones like us that suffer. And those are, we're the ones that go to war for a variety of misguided purposes for people to make money, uh, not just in, um, in, in specific bullets and bombs, but just in, in other ways. I understand there's a horrendous drug culture going on relative to, to laundering of money in banks and different things throughout the world, you know, and tax havens and uh, getting your money, you know, out of the way so you don't have to pay taxes on it. And all the little people, we do the right thing with our taxes. You know, I'm worried about every little penny. Is this accurate when I do my taxes? You know, people like us, we're the ones that get taken advantage of unknowingly by the elites and the power people. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. Because um, coming from a veteran, coming from someone who gave his legs, as, as you say, um, coming from someone who's worked in politics, who's worked with the VA, you know, you've been in all these different um, establishments. I think your voice is very powerful. So for people listening, where can they find your books? I mean, as you said, some, some are, um, you know, hard to find and the most recent yeah. one is more available. So where's the best place? Yeah, well, I've had three books published. The, the first one is basically my story, my uh, walk of faith, and my uh, healing and wounding, wounding and healing story, and my faith walk as wounded soldier, healing warrior. A few left on the secondary market and Amazon. It's basically out of print, no new books out there, and I don't have any. Number two book was called Valorant Vietnam, which is 19 chapters of specific individual stories about um, members of all branches of the military, a nurse and a contractor in Vietnam, what they went through and why they went to war, why they went there and what the aftermath was of what they did after the war. So it's a, it's a historical uh, story, stories from 63 to 77. You know, they said, well, the war ended in 75. Well, buy the book and find out why I went to 77. But it's stories of the war, very intimate. And then it, it has done very well, also, relatively well also, and some tremendous reviews. The third one is self-published about this socio-political, economic, financial report of soldiers' blood and bloody money. Uh, it's self-published, so it's available. All three are available on Amazon, especially this third one, because it's print-on-demand and so forth. It has only 20 reviews, but I'm telling you, those 20 reviews are powerful. One man wrote that's an officer that served in the military, says, every officer in the United States military should read Allen's book. And then other ones said, you know, it's like taking a, a socioeconomic political a course in college for a year to read his book and learn what he talked about, you know? So I've had some incredible reviews that have been kind enough and thoughtful enough and took the time to write the reviews after they bought the book. So, I mean, it's hard to get a book marketed and public uh, and advertised when it's self-published as, as perhaps you well know from your own. <laughs> I would like to mention, you know, um, Having known you for several weeks now and, you know, known the the program we were going to have for this very kind and thoughtful interview last week and second session today, whose foreword is by Josh Bull, it's called One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter by you, James Geary. I um, 
said last week, I said, you know, I'm going to be interviewed by him. He's taken the time. It's a privilege. I said, I'm going to get his book. So I did. And I started reading it about 10 days ago. And um, I have so many other things in which I'm involved that I candidly, truthfully, I'm not word for word, but I've read very carefully and completely the first several chapters and then glanced through the other ones because I wanted to be prepared for our interview. But it's a tremendous book on specifically what you went through as a firefighter, the training, the the pressures you went through, the life you went through as a first responder, and all the things that made me really appreciate you and other first responders as firefighters because of reading these examples, the tough training you go through, which which equals, you know, much of the training in the military, special forces, uh, ranger training, uh, SEALs, uh, air commandos, and so forth, and a lot of other people in the military, and the kind of tough training it is to be prepared to be a firefighter, get a job, and go to work, and all the different stories of what you all have been through and, and different examples of pressures and, and the healing process. And I think it's a tremendous book. You know, if they have a choice today of buying one book, buy yours, buy mine tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. Flip that around. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm going to be buying um, Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money definitely because I think it's you know, a theme that, that if ever there was a time to be aware of that, it's now. So I, I urge people to to buy it as well. It's a topic that's come up a lot with some of my guests recently. And I think you said every member of the military should read it. I think every civilian and you know, every member of a country should read it, whether you're here, the UK, wherever. You know, you should understand the financial element behind it. And especially, sadly, you know, if, if that radiates through to our politicians. I mean, personally, I think we need a good, you know, control, alt, delete, as they say in the computer world on, on that whole system. Them, you know, and put it back to to where we have people sitting in leadership positions that truly are there because they care about the people in their in their country. So, well, re- reading this book of mine uh, it makes you an informed citizen. And you know, you mentioned financial, and one of the major things is the banker influence through the years. And I mean, that has been very prominent and preeminent in society for maybe time immemorial since the money changers. That, that the Lord went after, Jesus went after in, in the uh, temple and so forth. Uh, but the, the bankers uh, on both sides, you know, Jewish and, and Christian Gentile bankers have had a tremendous amount of power, tremendous amount of influence through history. And I go into that through that also. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you, James, it's been such a privilege to meet you and to talk to you and to get to know you and to be able to emote and talk as I have. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, again, like I tell people that come on, especially if they share, you know, stories that that are, you know, traumatic initially, and I know that they're traumatic when sometimes when people relive them. But I know that the the ripple effect, the value of other people hearing your story, and, and like I said, your unique perspective is invaluable. Um, I know that that's going to touch so many people that listen. So I want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. Well, I thank you, James. It's so delightful to get to know a fine gentleman who has served as fellow citizens as you have. And I wish you the best and may God bless you. May the desires of your heart be fulfilled. Thank you very much. <laughs>